You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Time to belt up. We have a hard-hitting podcast today with Mr. Rafael Lobato. Lobato started his journey in martial arts at an early age. After cutting his teeth in Jeet Kune Do, he made a move to Jiu-Jitsu, where the story begins. Presently, he's a fifth-degree Jiu-Jitsu black belt under Salo and Shanjay Habero of Six Blades. He holds the distinction of being part of the first American father-son duo to earn black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Competition has always been important. So 20-plus years ago, he started traveling to Brazil to compete. Let me tell you, it's uncommon for Americans to travel to Brazil to compete and win today. Imagine what it was 20 years ago. But Lovato understood to be the best, you have to train and compete with the best. Today, he's one of the few in the world who can claim the title of world champion in gi and no gi jiu-jitsu and MMA. His growth as a mentor and businessman has expanded into his own brand of Lovato Jiu-Jitsu schools with over 30 locations. He's active on social. He shares his knowledge from his home base academy in Oklahoma City and online at TimelessJiuJitsu.com. Prepare yourself for Mr. Rafael Lobato. I have some some big plans. I'm going to be releasing a book early next year. Uh, just finishing it up right now, and then going to start the back and forth edits and all that, um, which will probably take me a good basically the rest of the year. Um, and then we get that out, and I'm kind of hoping that that leads to a podcast uh, of the same title. Um, uh, afterwards, I would love to. What's the title? Are, uh, are you okay to drop it? Uh, well, you can say working title. Yeah. Well, it, it it's it's finalized, but um, okay. But if you follow me, you could probably figure it out. Okay. Um, but I, I want to save it before I. I okay. When I when I say it, I want already to have everything lined up where people can go and start following it. And, you know, it's a whole new venture, um, a brand and just, um, something that I, I want to do to kind of obviously share my story through martial arts, but give people the lessons and the motivation, inspiration and everything that helped me that I believe that you can apply into any walk of life and help you reach your goals. Um, and so, uh, I, I'm hoping that, um, you know, obviously I'll have a lot of people that follow me through martial arts that will check it out, but then I really wanted to expand into something very big that connects me, um, you know, with, uh, with everybody in the world and, and, um, allow me the opportunity to give them some positive energy and make a positive impact on their life and, um, just see where that leads, you know, and, and just, um, connect to, people outside more people outside martial arts that are um uh, high level achievers and and um and give me the opportunity to learn from them speak with them and and just share share the energy just like what we're doing today i i I like being a part of podcasts Mm -hmm. and so uh i just thought down the line like as i kind of slowed down the competition and you know um uh, look for new um opportunities and and new ways to to do what i'm interested in other things that i love to do that i don't get to put first and foremost uh you know kind of transition into that lane and uh, explore those a little more gotcha so uh 
I'm really into origin stories. I'm like fascinated by where people come from, how they got into this and how you've kind of ascended to who you are. Um, and I know uh, we talked a little bit about it because we met at IBJJF Worlds in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Was that like two months ago? Yeah. Feels like two months ago. Um, but the idea that, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, your dad owned a martial arts studio and you grew up in mm-hmm. that environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy because it was all very much like this timeline of, you know, nowadays martial arts, specifically mixed martial arts, jujitsu, they've become very popular. Um, basically everyone knows what MMA is. Everyone, they might think of it as UFC, you know, Oh, you do UFC or something like that. Um, but like that has, that sport has grown to an immense level. And then inside of that, Anyone that watches UFC or any sort of MMA, now they're very aware of what jiu-jitsu is. Oh, that's the stuff they're doing when they're on the ground, um, especially with Joe Rogan being a commentator and being as as um, uh, intelligent you know, as he is with his martial arts background. And he is a jiu-jitsu practitioner, a jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, he's put in a lot of great, um, ex- he's given us a lot of exposure. Um, so now everyone knows, but... Uh, I, I came up in a in a much different era where nobody knew, and um, I was really kind of a part of the the transition from sort of traditional martial arts as it evolved into mixed martial arts. But that was all through Jeet uh, Kune Do. Mm-hmm. So my father, he's a Jeet Kune Do instructor. Um, I was born in Ohio, um, in Cincinnati, and we lived there until I was eight. And there was a, a Jeet Kune Do school that he was a part of um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he was an assistant instructor. He was influenced by Bruce Lee, as basically yeah. everyone was um, back in those days. And um, he was a, a boxer when he was younger. Then he got into traditional martial arts. And then he discovered Bruce Lee. And then he sought out Jeet Kune Do. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do what Bruce Lee did. And uh, we had a Jeet Kune Do school there. Um, he was also a professional organist. So my dad is like just a one of a kind guy. Like, I mean, who do you know can like fight and play the organ? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so he was a professional organist. He would practice. He led the choir. Um, you know, he did all that in the day. And then at night we'd go to the academy and I would watch him train. And I'd be the kid over on the side playing with my toys or whatever and just watching, seeing what's going on. And then when I got to be about four, I did my I started my first official classes at that school. Um, actually, it was Kempo that I did first. That was like kind of their kids program was a, a Kempo program. Uh, but keep in mind, my father had already been training me and teaching me at home um, since I could move, basically. And I'm an only child. So I, I had all of his focus and energy on me at all times. Um but um, but that's what we were doing. And then uh, when I was eight, we moved to Oklahoma. My mom is from Oklahoma. And we actually thought we might move to Texas, but it didn't work out. And then we ended up in Oklahoma. And um, and my parents both got jobs relatively quickly. Uh, my father was um, a physical therapist at a hospital. And obviously, he you know loved martial arts. And he was looking for an opportunity to start teaching and the hospital gave him that opportunity. So he started teaching a martial arts class inside the hospital, which quickly grew. Um, and it became like 20, 30 people. And then he kind of had like a little garage 
dojo going on and um, uh, to give his students more opportunities to train with him. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, all right, let's let's go all in and, and open up a school. And um, and so he had open, opened up a martial arts school there. It was called Martial Arts International. Uh, everyone called it MAI for short. And um, and that was our first school. And that was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. Now it was uh, like April of 93. And um, he he was a Jeet Kune Do representative. It was a Jeet Kune Do school. Uh, we had a lot of um, like Richard Bastillo and, and several of the uh, instructors inside the JKD world that would come and teach seminars. And, and it was right around that time that my dad was going to California to do the Jeet Kune Do instructor conferences that they held every year. And, uh, he got introduced to the Gracies, you know? So like the, the Jeet Kune Do mindset was very much, you know, learn everything and put it together and create your own system. Um, they knew that there was different ranges of combat um, and they, they did everything from weapons, you know, into different kicking arts like Savat, of course, Muay Thai. And then they had a lot of boxing influence um, into like the trapping range um, that led to clinching and basically some grappling. Um, it was very like rough back in the days, like catch wrestling, catch mm -hmm. catch can um, and even like shooto, shoot fighting style grappling it wasn't nowhere near any any like real technical level as jujitsu but it existed and we knew that fighting on the ground was um it was important to have some understanding of that my dad as a smaller guy he's he was only like 145 pounds back in those days when he was in his 30s and um and he really gravitated towards jujitsu once he got exposed to it um uh and the gracies and and everything we just that really had a big impact on him and um he began going back and forth to california to learn from the gracies it was uh um, it, it kind of um led him to hickson he spent some time with at hickson school and then the following years, as he went back, he he met the Machados. So the uh, the Jeet Kune Do instructor conference, they used the Machados in one of the the uh, following years as their grappling instructors. And he really loved the Machado brothers. Um, I remember how excited he was to tell me about his experience with them when he came back. Excuse me. And um, and that was a game changer because then. Uh, you know, this is now a couple years later, rolling into like 96, Carlos Machado, um, who's the oldest of the Machado brothers, he calls my dad and says, hey, uh, Chuck, Chuck Norris, um, he was one of their students in L.A. He was a student of the Machados in L.A. He got signed on to do the Walker, Texas Ranger show, Ranger show uh, which is an awesome show. And they had the Machado brothers in that show. Um he got signed to do that show and he wanted to keep learning jujitsu. And so he said, Hey, uh, Carlos, will you come with me to Dallas, Texas and, uh, and keep teaching me in Texas. And so, um, he was the reason that Carlos moved to Dallas and that was just a game changer for us. And Carlos calls us up and says, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to move to Dallas, you know? And he's kind of like, is that, that's pretty close to you. Right. And we're like, yeah, you know, it's only three, three and a half hours away. And so now my dad doesn't have to go all the way to California anymore. And um, 
and I had actually already done a trip to California um, before that. Um, I think it was like a spring break or something. We drove all the way there. I drove with my dad. Um, but uh, uh, anyways, Carlos moves to Dallas and now we only have to go, you know, three, three and a half hours to get access to a jujitsu black belt. And Carlos is an amazing teacher. Um, and my dad just started going down there every week. He would go on Thursdays. He would do a lesson in the morning, do the morning class that Carlos taught, and then drive back home and then teach classes at night at our school. And he did that every Thursday for about like three years. Wow. Um, and then now I'm churning, I'm starting to become a teenager, like 15, 16 years old. And, um, and basically we kind of transitioned to where he was so busy with the school and now I'm a little older and my dad doesn't really fly. He, he's, he's a driver. He doesn't like to fly. Um, he basically started sending me everywhere. And, uh, you know, it used to be him going and coming back and showing me what he learned and we would drill and work on stuff. You know, like I said, my dad was a smaller guy. I was a big kid. So we kind of were the same size. And then I started getting bigger than him pretty quickly. Um, but uh, I was naturally his number one training partner. And then it kind of transitioned to me traveling around. And then I would study and, you know, uh, learn and compete, train, do the whole thing, and then come home and show my dad what I learned, my, tell him about my experience. And then we would work on the stuff that I brought home. And, uh, and that was it. Um, that was our process. And that led to us not only being the first black belts in the state of Oklahoma, but being the, and the first to offer jujitsu there, the first to bring, you know, this level of martial arts to our area of the country. But, um, but we also became the first American father and son jujitsu black belts. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah. That's, uh, <clears throat> um, dude, the, the Jiku Do stuff is, is super fascinating. I mean, mm -hmm. I lived in Oakland and uh, not far from where Bruce right. Lee lived. So that was always big. And then, uh, my training partner in college was a guy named Drake Parker. His uh, uncle was Ed Parker. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, his dad's David Parker, who's, who's obviously Ed Parker's brother. They've since passed away. But uh, it was uh -huh. neat when I got to go to Hawaii and hang out with him. He would always tell stories about Elvis and his brother and all that. So it was it was neat. And then, um, you know, so that's how I knew about American Kempo was uh -huh. through Ed Parker. Uh -huh. Did you happen to know the name Richard Bastillo? No. He was actually a Hawaiian guy. Oh, was he? Um, he was one of Bruce's top students, uh, along with Danny Nosano. So I, I went to a martial arts event that had Danny Osando that uh -huh. was doing a bunch of like Bruce Lee stuff, like mm -hmm. the one inch punch and the mm -hmm. push ups and all that. So we got to meet him. It was nice. Neat. Somewhere there's an autograph of it. Yeah. Because I, I started in Shotokan when I was six. Okay. And then uh, when I was 10, I thought kicking was stupid. And that's when I got into boxing. Uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I had I have pictures with Danny when I was like six years old. Uh, my father was going to a lot of his seminars, but he really had a close bond with Richard. Um, I think it, a lot of that had to do with Richard was also a former boxer as well. And my dad had the boxing background. Um, he was born in Chicago and he grew up boxing in Chicago. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time with Richard. Richard came to our house, he came to Oklahoma and he was right along the same lines, uh, of Danny is just like this incredible wealth of knowledge and martial artists, you know, always learning and practicing well into his later years. I mean, you see Danny today. I mean, yeah. He's got to be in his 80s. Yeah. Um, he still moves. He's still still training, still teaching. 
And um, and they were both one of the first ones to go all in on jujitsu and study jujitsu, get their black belts and and everything um, from those core JKD guys. Um, but uh, you oh, know that that was just an incredible experience to be so close to Bruce. Basically, yeah. these were his. It's the source. Yeah, exactly. And then Chuck is the re- uh, Chuck Norris is the yeah. reason that jujitsu came. To our back, not back door. I mean, you know, it was another state, but that was a huge deal for us not having to go all the way to California, New York, or Florida. Those were basically the options of jujitsu back in those days. Yeah. Well, I and, mean, but uh, I, I run into this constantly with people where, like, if the best dude in the world is like across town, like, get in your car and drive. Yeah. It's like when I met Shanji and he's like, oh, it's kind of a bit of a drive. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and I'm like, I've been saying this for years. If like somebody's good in your town, go learn from them. I mean, your dad drove three hours each way to go yeah. learn from somebody. Yeah. Now you get people like, oh, God, it's three streets away. I don't know I if know. I can go. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird deal where knowledge was so, um, there were so many few people doing it that you almost had to go search it out. Right. And there was, um, you know, and it's good as an instructor. If somebody puts that, that effort forth, you feel like you have to at least meet them halfway. Totally. And I, I talk about that too. I, I attribute a lot of my success to that, even though it was harder um, you know, I didn't have daily access. I, um, I appreciated it more when I was there, you know, so I was very, I wasn't going through the motions. I was 100% engaged. I had my notebook. I had questions lined up that I was going to, I knew I was going to ask because it's like, okay, I only have a day or a week, whatever, um, that I'm going to be around this person that can actually answer my questions. I want to make sure I ask everything. I would take notes on, um, uh, on all the answers and I would just study. I would always be watching. If I wasn't training, I'd be watching. If I was training, I was like really trying to register everything that people were were trying to do to me and uh, and were doing to me. And then I w- if I didn't know or understand why they were doing that, I would ask them. I would just keep asking questions, just trying to absorb as much knowledge as I could. And then I would take it all home. And then me and my dad would practice the same stuff for an extended amount of time because we weren't learning something new every day. So we would give everything the time it deserved Mm. to really explore, practice, drill, give the repetitions, and then come up with our new set of questions. And, um, and then we would start showing it to our students, which also helped us drill and review and just, you know, keep um, jamming it into our heads. Was it difficult to have a school there with, um, with so little understanding of what you guys were teaching? It was, it was, um, uh, you know, once again, is a different time. And so here we are kind of way ahead of the game. And, uh, you know, my father, he's, he's a, a pioneer of martial arts in our area of the country. And just, just as an American in general, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of black belts back in those days, American black belts. Um, and the whole package that he had to offer was just really one of a kind back then. And so, you know, we, we have this cutting edge martial arts school in the middle of nowhere. But then when people think of martial arts, they just thought of Taekwondo karate, you know, the traditional martial arts. Sure. And so it was hard to really express the value in where we were, like what we were doing. Um, it's hard for people to understand that. And not to mention, um, you know, my dad, he's, he's old school. He's pretty hardcore. And so he, he was much more in a training building like, um, you know, 
I don't want to say just tough guys. I mean, he was creating an incredible martial artist, but it was um, it was pretty hardcore, you know. Like <laughs> it was not kind of gentle. No, no, no. We uh, we we were doing grappling on carpet, you know, concrete carpeted floor. Um, we didn't have AC, you know. It, it, we didn't have a lot back in those days, and. My dad was the type that, okay, we're going to start this class by going out and running two or three miles, come back. Then we're going to do, you know, this much mitt work and cardio. And then after all that, we're going to start sparring. And then we're going to spar. And then we're going to grapple on the floor, you know. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was rough. And, uh, and on one hand, like I'm, I can look back on that and just be so grateful, you know, that I came up in that process. It definitely made me tough. And we were, I mean, we were going full on like MMA style. Uh, I mean, I was just a kid. I was 15, 16 years old fighting grown men. And, you know, we were in a kind of a rough area of town and like someone came in kind of talking, oh, what is this stuff? Uh, I, I, you can't beat me up, whatever, da, da, da you know, I want to challenge your best, your best guy. And that happened all the time, really all the time. And my dad be like, all right, come on in, sign this waiver. I got some gloves for you. Let's go. And by the time I was 15, 16, um, you know, we would get wrestlers, kickboxers, karate guys, whatever, come in say some things. And my dad be like, all right, go with my son. And I was the, the one to take out the trash. And, and give him a little bit of extra humiliation because, yeah. you know, I had uh, pimples on my face and I'm just a teenager in high school, you know. Um, how, how old were you when you got your black belt? I had just turned 21. Wow. Uh, it was like a month after I turned 21. Um, but I, I started going to Brazil. The first time I went to Brazil, I was 16. And uh, so I was I was getting exposed um, to just this new world of jujitsu and i was watching valley tudo fights you know bare knuckle mma fights um you know it, it was a it was a different time but it was amazing and i the very first worlds was in 96 and the first worlds that i went to was 99 wow and so i i've nearly been to and seen and competed at every world championship um almost you know i took a break when i was doing mma but uh, uh, from 99 to 2014, I was basically at every single one of them competing. We interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Are you pushing through performance roadblocks caused by pain or janky movement mechanics? Knock the rust off with our movement health courses used by thousands of athletes worldwide from average shows to MVPs. Our courses give you the tools to assess and fix yourself so you can get back to break-in necks and cash in checks. Not convinced? Get a taste of how our courses can help you by enrolling in a free sample today. Head to powerathletehq.com and search courses from the menu. Now back to the show. So what is it about jujitsu? I mean, you know, you've been exposed to Jeet Kune Do, you've Kempo, you know, uh, MMA, mixed martial arts. What is it about jujitsu that you went in that direction? I mean, because you ended up getting back into the MMA, but like, what is it about like the allure of jujitsu? Well, I mean, to, to talk about how amazing jujitsu is, we could we could go on and on and on for that, uh, you know, about that for hours. Um, at that time specifically, 
almost kind of similar to why my dad, I think why my dad loved it so much too. I was still a kid. I was smaller and I was boxing a lot at that time. Um, I was doing uh, golden gloves, like amateur boxing as a kid from about nine to 12 years old. And we didn't have, it didn't, it's not like we had a team of kids for me to box with. So my normal day to day boxing training that I was doing was with adults. Um, and, uh, you know, I was a big kid too. So, um, I sparred a lot with adults and I'm getting hit in the head. You know, I wasn't near as strong as I'm a little kid. I'm 10, 11 sure. years old, you know, so it, it is what it is. But, um, once we started learning the more technical jujitsu, and I, I already did enjoy the grappling that we were doing in JKD. And the fact that I was long and flexible and stuff like that, I, I, I could do a couple of things uh, on the ground with adults back then. And, and I could feel myself give them a little bit of a hard time. But then once we started doing the, the more technical jujitsu and our, my, our eyes were really getting open to how deep that world was and I'm starting to learn. And of course I'm learning more than what everyone else is doing because all the extra time I was spending with my dad and I started traveling at a young age, you know, I was getting all this exposure. By the time I was 14, um, I, I, I could give every adult around me a real problem. Um, I was a, you know, I was a problem for them. They couldn't just hit me, you know, like they couldn't beat me up the same way they could if we were boxing. And, um, and I mean, I, I think I submitted my first adult blue belt when I was 14. Um, and I had these long legs, flexible, very hard for people to pass my guard and I could triangle them. And I was just triangling all the, you know, the grownups around. That's where Philippe gets it, huh? <laughs> uh, well, that's the beauty of starting when you're young, yeah. you learn how to survive, you get a good guard. And then when you grow up and you get bigger, then you can learn how to be on top and be heavy and be strong and all that. Yeah. Um, and so then you have this complete style. Yeah. And uh, no, I've, dude, I've always said like learning like how to Olympic weightlift and jujitsu and all this after you're already strong puts yeah. you at a disadvantage. 100%. Because you can rely upon, I mean, Shanji talks about all the time. He's like the energy button on the game. Uh -huh. like, don't hit the energy button. Yeah. Like pretend you're weak. Just learn, use the techniques. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. There's definitely a downside to being a really great athlete and learning martial arts, specifically jujitsu, uh, where technique is so deep and so so important if you can just athlete out of stuff and you know just kind of power explode or whatever turn it up in a way that other people can't keep up with uh, you're gonna your technique is gonna suffer because of that um but for me personally as soon as i started submitting regularly all the adults around <laughs> i uh I, I just like man this is it i love this stuff and um, then when I got exposed to the sport, because keep in mind, when we first started learning jujitsu, we didn't know there was a sport of jujitsu nowadays. It almost kind of, it almost kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit when like people say, oh, I'm looking for a sport to, to practice, you know, or, um, I'm looking for uh, specifically with like kids, like parents come in, I'm looking for a sport for my kid so he can compete and things like that. Yes, there is a sport, but it's a martial art. You know, it, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. And it's it's self-defense. It's uh, so much deeper than a sport. Obviously, there's a lot of great uh, character building things that we can get from sports. But for me, martial arts, I mean, it's 
it's it's for the long haul. Once we become a martial artist, we're going to be a martial artist for the rest of our life. And so I really try to practice and preach to my students the martial arts lifestyle. And um, and for me, that's what I grew up in with my father. It's martial arts, and uh, we act a certain way, and we uh, are doing this for self defense. There was always a, a combat, a real life combat theme for why we were learning all these things. And so when I first started learning jujitsu was because, hey, you need to know how to fight on the ground. Mm. You need to know how to defend yourself. And this is the best thing for you to do uh, in a in a scenario where someone's bigger, stronger, you know, close the distance, clinch up, put them down, control them, choke them, whatever, you know, and um, and take as little damage as possible. And so it was a few, uh, I mean, uh, I can't say the exact time, but it was a couple years in before we actually saw a sport jujitsu match. What we saw of jujitsu was like the Gracie and action tapes and Valley Tudo fights and things like that. It's like, that was the combat of jujitsu that we saw. And then it was like, hey, wait a minute, there's actually tournaments and and competitions for jujitsu. and then, of course, that led to me going to Brazil and competing in uh, in the World Championships. Is there a difference between like a combative, self defense style jujitsu and what we see within the sport of jujitsu? Definitely, definitely. Um, there, there is a like it, it goes way deeper when we're talking about sport. The the amount of techniques and games and 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 vast arrays of uh, of mini games that we can do become not necessary when we're talking about real combat we're going to focus on basically the fundamentals Mm -hmm. um the the simple things that are straightforward straight to the point that's really all you need but at the same time you need to become a master of those um and not get lost in the sport world, um, you know, like the first jujitsu that I practiced, there were a lot of takedowns. We did a lot of takedowns. You know, it wasn't, uh, we weren't quick to just pull guard, you know, and and we weren't very good at the takedowns, but there were takedowns. Um, and, you know, just as the sport has evolved, it's beautiful, but um, it's definitely changed the landscape 100%. Um, it's amazing to see the professional opportunities and just the 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 ability to live as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, a competitor, um, and how many people are doing jiu-jitsu these days. Uh, but once again, back in the in that time, it was it was hard to have a school. It was hard to have a school the way my dad ran the school, <laughs> um, and there were a lot of tough times coming up um business wise and then just all the sacrifice and hardships to learn and being forced to travel and i mean in my days you had to go to brazil you weren't going to see the best guys any other way there was no youtube i mean you could maybe get your hands on some vhs tapes yeah but um but there was no other way to really see the highest levels of jujitsu without going to brazil and you kind of needed to do that to really level up and uh, and work your way to a, you know, a, a world level stage. Um, 
or, or, or just ability, uh, level of ability. Um, you know, if you only, if I, if we only stayed in Oklahoma, yeah, you'd have been big fish in the little pond. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you wouldn't know who I am, <laughs> you know, um, I wouldn't be where I am today, but, uh, but like I said, that's such a beautiful part of my journey. And when I started going to Brazil in the, in the beginning of the, those years as a kid, that completely changed me. I just said, I like, I saw the passion. I saw the sport being done. The, the champions and the greats of that time, just, you know, with no, no media, no money, no, like nothing. And I saw them fighting with so much passion and, and love and pride. And, um, and I just, I saw that and I said, man, I want to be, I want to be one of these guys that everyone is, is standing and cheering for. I, I want to, uh, I want to be that, that guy, you know, um, and I, I really wanted to do it in Brazil. That was, I mean, I wanted to be a gringo winning in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, that just changed my life. Power Thief Nation, this episode is brought to you by Eight Sleep. Summer's in full effect and it is hot here in Texas. And when I say hot, I mean hot, hot. And the best way to sleep is at 55 degrees with the Eight Sleep pod cover. This thing allows the bed to get icy and there's nothing better on a hot night than slipping into an icy cold bed. Now, there's a few features of this thing that are absolute game changers. One, it's a pod cover, so it fits on top of your present mattress. Anybody that's been in the market and had to go out and shop for a new mattress, complete pain in the ass because you usually have a significant other or a friend or whoever sleeps with you that decides, hey, this is the temperature I like. I like firmer. I like softer. So you can keep your mattress. It's a pod cover that fits on top. Also, it's split zone. So let's say I like to sleep at 55 degrees and my wife likes to sleep at 65. We can have separate temperatures, which just makes everybody happy. And then also for the performance crowd, which I'm kind of a geek, I like to know all of the different sleep metrics out there. It gives me how long I slept, how restful, how many breaths, and most importantly, my HRV, which I can track. So allows me to know how restful and how well I sleep. It also has some custom tuning with different temperatures that gets really deep in the weeds with this thing. It's as good a system as I've ever seen. So if you're interested in checking out the 8sleep pod cover, you can use the code 8sleep.com slash powerathlete for $150 off. I recommend you check it out. I'm not only telling you about it, I'm also a user every single night and I'm sold on 8sleep. Check it out. Is there a difference between like what the Machados teach and let's say like the Gracie lineage, even though I know they're both related, they're like cousins, but, um, I know I met Jean-Jacques Machado. He has no fingers on his hands. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I know Todd White, who's my neighbor up the road. He's one of his black original black belts. And he talked about like his style was different because he did not have the ability to have grips. Yeah. Well, with the Machados, you had a really amazing combination between all of them. Um, a couple of them were a little more on the competitive side. Um, you know, Jean-Jacques, he had the the disability that really, and he was a competitor. And so his technical approach and the way he developed his style uh, with his hand uh, just had a, a major inspiration on how good he got because of that thing disabling him. Yeah. Um, and he was a competitor. And so he's, you know, really uh, challenging and testing himself at the highest levels. And then Hegan also liked to compete. Um, Carlos, the oldest, uh, was more of the intellectual. He's very well read. He, I, I would stay with him um, when I was younger. He would let me stay at his apartment in Dallas as he was getting settled in there. And and um, I would just 
kind of follow him around to gym. I would be his partner for all of his private lessons, do every single class that he taught and um, just kind of be that kid just following the adult. You know, he's kind of babysitting me. And uh, but I would just work and train all day. Uh, but Carlos was always reading and he was just a very uh, uh, introspective as well. He loved philosophy and just he, he could talk and talk and talk with people, just loved learning and, and gaining knowledge. And he took that approach to his teaching style. He's just very detail oriented. He would uh, he would write notes as he taught. Uh, he just get ideas. Oh, we can do this. We can do that. He just he really loved diving deeper all through all the layers of technique and uh, and finding the the most efficient way to perform a move and he was a an amazing teacher and i got to spend a lot of time with him um so you know and then there's a couple other brothers that competed and taught and they're kind of a blend of you know from one side to the other of uh teaching competing and so you got a nice mix of minds bodies and styles all within um, one, one family. And they were very close, very tight knit. They were all together in LA, mm -hmm. uh, initially. And then Carlos was the first to, to, to move. And then of course, over the years, everyone kind of had different things. When going they on. came out, they were actually teaching at the gold's gym in uh -huh. Donda beach down the side. Uh, Cause we used to train there in high school uh -huh. and I used to see the Machado signs and they were actually teaching classes in the aerobics room. That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, the, the that academy was the that they opened after that, um, if you, ever were around that area it was also yeah i grew up in torrance yeah uh my dad's office was uh one street over on um torrance boulevard uh-huh uh, carson uh street yes, was where carson. yeah, yeah. Was, was where the original gracie academy was uh -huh. Uh -huh. and there was an all-you-can-eat japanese restaurant called todai we used to go to right behind it there was probably a day where you were driving around driving by you saw the machado school and me and my dad were inside there yeah um but uh but yeah the the gracie brothers they were a little more split you know Hickson had his thing going on, um, and they weren't as, I mean, they, they weren't very active in jiu-jitsu competition. You know, Hickson was fighting in Japan. He was actually fighting, fighting. Hoist was fighting, fighting. Um, Henzo was doing ADCC and stuff like that, but he was in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and he's not, I mean, he's a cousin, right? So different side of the Gracie family. Um, so I think the Machados were a little more on the on the jiu-jitsu competition scene mm -hmm. they were doing worlds they were doing adcc uh they were building a competition team of their own a lot of the og machado uh american students were going to brazil along with me i was part of that group from texas and also california even even hawaii the anoe brothers were were under the machados um they were they were meddling at the world championships at the blue purple and brown belt uh, ranks, you know, um, way back in the days when it was really difficult for a non-Brazilian to win a world medal. When I first started going to Brazil to compete at the world championships, you how, would, uh, how old were you? I had just turned 16. Oh. Uh, it was 99. Uh, the worlds were in July and my birthday is June 25th. So I, I just turned 16. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. I'm a kid from Oklahoma. And I go to Brazil, third world country, to compete in the world championships. You know, so I immediately <laughs> had my eyes open, yeah. and uh, I was very overwhelmed and uncomfortable, and kind of in awe, but also a little scared. Like this is kind of a dangerous place, and 
all these guys look really scary. Where'd you go, Rio? Yeah, or, yeah. Rio. I, I, I've been to Rio. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, you see real poverty, yeah. real. Yeah, see the favelas and all yeah. that. It's like next level. Real uh, danger, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I would just turn 16, kid from Oklahoma, without my parents. <laughs> yeah. like, Solo. No one's really taking care of me. I yeah. mean, they're they're supposed to, but they're also doing their own thing. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, I grew up pretty quick. But, um, but, um, oh gosh, why, why did we start? Where, where did we go with that? Well, you were talking about, uh, going to Brazil, uh, Americans trying to meddle. Yeah, that's it. So in those days you, you could see all the other gringos. Like we, we were basically all training at the same place. Um, and you would end up hearing, oh, those guys are from California, from Half Gracie. Mm -hmm. Those guys are from Henzo's in New York, or those guys train with this guy. You know, you, you figured out, we'd all talk to each other. It's like we could see, okay, that guy doesn't look Brazilian. Yeah. You start talking, you figure out who's who. And then everyone kind of gets to know each other a little bit. And then the world's come. And each day as it's going on, gossip would come around. Oh, uh, the blue belt from Half Gracie's. Man, that guy took third place. He got to the podium. Uh, or so-and-so somewhere else, one of the guys in Texas, one of the guys in, in the Machado team in California, whatever, you would, you would figure out who was winning or who even went, who even won more than one match. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they got to the quarters, if they got near the medal rounds, close to the podium, um, you, you would hear about it. We would talk about it. And when you looked at the results at the end of the competition, at all belt levels, blue through black. Now, keep in mind, at that time, there was only a couple American brown and black belts even competing and maybe one would would win a medal mm -hmm. and it was never gold it was hardly ever ever gold uh at any belts but you would say oh yeah there was like five gringo medalists a blue belt that took bronze another one that took silver a purple belt that took silver one brown belt bronze and a you know whatever and uh I mean, that's how hard it was. And you just kind of wanted to get to the podium. If you could just get to the podium, you were, you felt pretty good about it back in those days. Mm -hmm. um, and my first year to go was 99. But then in 2000, I was there. Um, I went every year. And that's when I watched BJ Penn win black belt gold medal. And he went there as a brown belt. It's a real famous story. Uh, you know, they call him the prodigy for a reason. Yeah. He, he went through the ranks in jiu-jitsu extremely fast. Um, you know, he, he had this incredible ability, very flexible, uh, great guard. He was doing wrestle-ups, uh, like, you know, scrambling up from his guard and taking people down. Um, and then he had good base and good top pressure for a featherweight. He was a featherweight. Mm -hmm. And he went as a brown belt, and he won, like, you have to compete in, in, a, in a big team like that, you had to compete to earn your spot on the A team to compete in the world championships. Um, and so literally at the Worlds, it was just the best of the best at that time. And he earned his spot in the for the brown belt. And then I believe they even, it was something like, hey, now go against our best black belt and see if you can win that match. And he did. And then got his black belt and the like, literally the next week, he's competing in his first tournament as a black belt, which was the World Championships, and he won. Wow! And then that was it. 
he's never had another black belt match since. He immediately went to MMA, got sure. into the UFC, yeah, yeah. and that was it. And um, now he just ran for what, Governor of Hawaii? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he really, I mean, he was the first. Yeah. He was the first one. Came out of nowhere. I remember meeting him when he was a brown belt at the Pan Ams earlier that year in 2000. I won the Pan Ams as a blue belt. He was a brown belt and he lost. He actually lost. Uh, I think he, I think he might have got into a fight actually in his match and both guys were DQ'd. It was something like that. Um, but he was in a hard match and da 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 da. I, I, I don't remember how it went, but he did not win a medal. He would, he, he like, he got disqualified or whatever. And then, uh, but I met him. I uh, had a friend of mine introduce me to him because he had already started to get this attention and people were talking about him, how good he was and how how he was giving really good guys a hard time back when he was just a purple belt, you know. And uh, and he said hi to me. We talked a little bit. I just won and he congratulated me. Um, I wish I would have got a picture with him in that moment. But I mean, we didn't even, I mean, there's no, yeah, there's no phone. Dude, like, you don't have dude there is so much historical, yeah. amazing shit that that's lost because I either had a blue uh, Blackberry Right. Or, or I had this like, you know, Nokia thing. Like I, I can think back on so many like dope situations I was in I where I was like, I can't believe that we didn't take pictures. I was just talking about that with somebody else to us. Now that I'm at this age, I, I, I do the kids these days are, yeah. I, I say, I, I do that phrase all the time for fun. But that was one of the things I was yeah. saying, oh man, they're, they're not even, they're green belts or whatever. And they're getting all this amazing footage and pictures. And, oh, it's yeah. It's unreal. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I met BJ. So I knew who he was. And then the rumors start going around. Oh, the the green goes in the finals. BJ's in the finals as a black belt. And, uh, and I watched him one win the finals. And uh, in that moment, I told everyone around me, and I keep in mind, I'm a little kid, you know, I'm, a, I'm 17 now at this point in time, but I'm just like, I'm going to be the next one. You wait and watch. I'm going to do it. I'm going to win here. Um, and yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I had my, my first life mission, what I knew I wanted to achieve as a man. I had that set in my mind by the time I was 16, 17 years old. And then what happened? <laughs> we made it come true. Yeah. Yeah. How, how long did it take? So that was 2000 when I watched BJ do it and I won in 2007. So seven years later, you won black belt at uh, heavyweight, ultra heavyweight, ultra heavyweight. Yes, oh. yeah, yeah. I was a big kid. I uh, still am, I guess. <laughs> well, what, what are you like two two fifteen, two twenty now? Right now, I'm. I, I walk around around two twenty. I okay. stay around two twenty. Um, the thing, the thing was, first, I, I had no understanding of diet. I had, I didn't know how to eat. Um, but, seafood diet, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, you seafood, I'm a you kid. eat it. Yeah. I was a kid, yeah. you know. Dude, I believe me, I know it. Uh, but the thing was for, for, for the juvenile division, the 16 and 17 year olds, once you're like 180, it's, it becomes ultra mm. it, it, it's over. Um, and so I, I hit 200 pounds when I was 16. Yeah. And so I, I got used to not having a weight limit, uh, when I did the juvenile division and then right after the 2000 worlds, um, I got my purple belt. And once again, I, I'm not really used to a limit. Now I fell into this uh, super heavy division, which was like 220 limit with the gi on. But I had already, like there were some other 16, 17 year old kids that were 230, 240, 250. Uh, in fact, 
the kid that beat me in 2000, his, his nickname was Big Mac. And he had that nickname for a reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a big kid. Uh, judo, good judo. Um, he beat me by a takedown. And that's the same person that I fought in the finals seven years later to win um, my, uh, my black belt division. But, um, but he was probably 250 already when we were 17. And he was still 250 or more seven years later when we were, when we were grown men. But, uh, but anyways, as I was saying, I, I got used to not having a limit. And uh, when I transitioned into the adult division, purple belt, I was super heavy. I went against Fabricio Verdum at the 2001 Pan Ams. I lost to him in the semifinals, uh, but it was a good match. It was a competitive match. Um, and then uh, going into Brazil for the Worlds later that year, I was just like, ah, whatever. I just eat. Just I'm, I'm growing. I just want to feed myself. And, uh, and then I did ultra heavy um, at the Purple Belt Worlds um, in 2001. And I took third place in that as well. Um, and I, like I said, I just got used to not having a limit. But then later as I got to Brown Belt, I got too heavy. I started being like 230, 235. I was slow and it wasn't the kind of game that I like to play. And I had a rough year. I started getting some losses I didn't feel like I should get. And I was like, you know what? I need to lean up. And I started taking strength and conditioning training more serious. Um, I didn't really have access to anyone, you know, of course, not of your level, but even like a good, decent level. I, a lot of it I had to figure out on my own. And I started like doing research and I figured out who Steve Maxwell was and some other people. And there was a really respected coach in Wichita, Kansas. Um, his name is Bill O'Connor. And uh, I was like 18, 19. And I heard about him and I would drive up to Wichita and get plans and work out, you know, work out with him. And he would show me how to lift and some stuff. And I started trying to dive in on it. And then I, I came back down by the time I was like 19, I kind of got back to where I was around 195, 200 all the time. And I was pretty leaned up and I really like took my physical condition serious at that point. And I had a good brown belt run at that weight. And then when I came to black belt, I was usually in that 200 pound range, mm -hmm. but then, uh, but then I started training with Solo and Shanji. And then now I had this situation where I have two teammates who are also around 200 pounds. So you were already a black belt by the time you met them. I was a brown belt when I met them. Um, and, I, and you met them in Columbus? Yes. At 2000, the 2003 Arnold Gracie World Championships. Um, it was a big Nogi Pro competition. Um, there was three divisions, 165 and under, 165 to 195, and then 196 and over. And I did the one up to 195, and Salo was in that division. And I went against Salo in the finals. Um, and that's how I met him. Of course, I knew who he was, obviously. I remember him the first time I went to Brazil in 99. I remember watching him compete. I remember the whole, the whole stadium chanting his name, Salo, Salo. I remember that. And just, uh, you know, he was one of the greats. Yeah. Um, in fact, he was the greatest of that those first years. Um, he was winning every single year, and he was the first one to be doing it at a different weight class every year. He kept like kind of like Leandro Lowe of this era. Solo was doing that back mm -hmm. then, and um, 
and so anyways, I went, I fought Solo and uh, it was a good match and that's how I met him. Um, and then I saw him in Brazil later that year and he, uh, he invited me to train with him and, and that just changed my life. But, uh, but how was, um, how was Solo's jujitsu style different than like the Machado's and what you'd been exposed to? Well, man, Solo, number one, some of the Machados were competitors. Obviously, Jean Jacques has his amazing uh, competition accomplishments, but uh, Carlos wasn't so much of a competitor. And that's the one that I was spending the most time with, of course, because he was right right next to me. I, I had gone to Jean Jacques a couple of times when I was in California. Um, his school, I believe, is Tarzana. Yeah, um, that's, that's where we went um, a couple of times when I was like a purple belt. And he was amazing. I loved it, but I didn't have that access to him all the time. So... I didn't really have anyone mentoring me as far as like what it what it means to be a champion, the attitude, the mindset, um, how to rise to the occasion when it's game day and um, and just also the preparation to lead up to that, to make sure you rise to the occasion on game day. I was, you know, my dad was a he was a great teacher and he was also a coach as well. And, he, and you know, one thing he taught me was. You got to work your ass off. I mean, he would tell me different things all the time, say things in my head. And of course, I was watching him say it to everyone else around all his uh, fighters that he had and people that he was teaching and, and building up to compete. Um, you know, he used to say things just like, how bad do you want it? Um, you know, like he would just push you really, he pushed me really hard. And he wasn't one to give a lot of praise. It was always, you can do better. And one other thing that he liked to say is, is it perfect or better? You know, and uh, no, but I'm, that's the uh, I mean, it's the same time I grew up. Yeah, it's I mean, that, I, that, I, that time. I don't think I ever had anybody tell me I was doing anything right. right. You know, I only knew when I was fucking like I had to come to the realization if they weren't screaming at me, it was because I was doing it right. Yeah. You know, and it was like I like, you know, when I get into this. I, I talk about this with my wife constantly. And she's like, more praise would be good. I'm like, I didn't grow up with a lot of praise. Mm -hmm. That was just different than how we were raised. And, you know, within sports or martial arts or any of the stuff we did. It was like if you weren't if you if you weren't getting yelled at, you were probably doing something right. Yeah, and uh, you know it's just kind of a different thing. And I'm sure running a school now, people are like looking for praise, and you're like, man, I didn't grow up like this. Yeah, and not to say it's right or wrong. It's just you know you fail at the margins of your experience. Right. Um, it's one of those interesting things because when you look back on it now, I'm sure you're super grateful for for coming up in that time and, and you could see how it molded you to who you are today definitely that kind of stuff made me really tough made me not give up um and work hard i developed a, a, a very strong work work ethic and it's not just because of what my dad was saying but also because he was doing it too he was training his ass off he was sparring with everyone working really hard he used to wake me up at 6 a.m and we would go do a run before i went to school or you know i when i got a little older i got a gym membership would go to the gym or i would just get up and go to the gym before i went to school on my own when i got a car stuff like that like he was the influence the example and then he also pushed me um so my work ethic and everything was there but my dad also wasn't really a competitor he didn't have a sport to do. I mean, he boxed a little bit and then he did a couple jujitsu tournaments, but it was hard. He was running the business. Yeah. And so he, he never developed fully the, the, you know, the, the focus and, and the, 
kind of the switch that you turn on to be a competitor. So and do you feel that Solo was able to Solo, kind of mentor you into that? He was that? my mentor for that 100%. 100%. If it wasn't for him, I never I never would have I mean, I was winning, I was doing good, but I uh I was missing that extra piece to become a world champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was meddling at the worlds at blue and purple and brown, but I wasn't winning. I wasn't getting the gold. And he 100% took me to the next level. Um, and I got my black belt in 2004. So we competed against each other in 03. I got my black belt in 04. And that was the year he... So we competed. We, we fought each other in March. I saw him in Brazil that year. Uh, he didn't compete that year, interesting enough. So it made him very approachable. I just saw him sitting there coaching. And I was I just got done competing and I go and I tap him on the shoulder and he turns around, and he looks at me, hey, my brother. You know, yeah. he he has this energy. Solo has an amazing energy. And uh and you know, we just competed against each other a few months before. Uh, but I I really earned his respect on that day. There was a vibe on that day. I beat one of his black belts in the semifinals to meet him in the finals. Um and no one knew who I was. I was just, you know, a kid from Oklahoma. That was my very first pro tournament ever. Um, but anyways, I made I made a, an impact on him. And then I see him there and boom, he starts talking to me. He said, oh, where are you training? I, let, I tell him where I'm training. And he's like, ah, do you like it? And I said, ah, it's okay. He's like, you want to train with me? I say, yes, I would love to train with you. He's like, where are you staying? I tell him where I'm staying. He's like, here's my card. Call me on Monday. I'll come to your hotel and pick you up. I do all that. He comes to my hotel, picks me up. One, like, sure enough. And this I, is in Brazil. This is in Brazil, in, in Brazil. Rio. He had a school in Copacabana. Oh yeah. Uh, at that time, and uh, so he comes and picks me up, and we go and train at his school. And this was so the there was two worlds at this time. I know that sounds confusing. There was a World Cup, which was a professional organization. They had a kind of a. There were different teams that didn't really like the CBJJ. Um, that's the IBJJF in Brazil, basically. Mm-hmm. It's the Confederation, Confederação Brasileira de Jiu-Jitsu. And then they made a CBJJO, and they paid for the winners. Mm-hmm. And so some teams only did the CBJJO, and some teams only did the CBJJ, and then some teams did both. And I didn't have any tie, so I, I went there and I said, oh, there's two? I'm going to go two weeks early, do this one, and then train and be sharper for the next one. And that's where I saw Solo was at the CBJJO one. And so then I had that time in between to be able to train with him to get ready for the next one. And so all, his whole team had just competed. He was one of the ones that did did both. And so the first day we go, he's literally spending like two hours going over every single mistake that all his guys made. And like breaking down technical situation after technical situation and showing all of these things that I had never seen before and really had never been done in any of my experience in Brazil prior. I had never been in, a, in an environment like that where they were really delivering the goods. Yeah, They very much had like a pride kind of mm, give the gringos a little bit, but don't show them everything. Uh. 
Okay. Um, because you know, yeah. I, I whatever I can I can see it right. Yeah. yeah. We're outsiders. A lot of us weren't even on their team, and we're in their house. And then some of us are going to compete against the other guys in that house, uh, in that academy. And so they don't want to show everything to help the guys that might be competing against their guys a week later or whatever. And and that's kind of the vibe that I was in every time I went to Brazil. You know, no one really wanted to help me because I might go against them or one of their yeah. teammates, and, and it is what it is. And I was a gringo. Um, and so then I go to Solos and he's just busting out the goods. And I remember I, I had one of my friends with me. Uh, he picked, he picked up me and my friend to go train. And I remember elbowing my friend. I was like, Hey, can you believe he's doing this? Are you getting this? Uh, remember that one. Remember that one. Don't forget that one. Like I wish I had a phone with yeah. a camera. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it was just like hours. And then inside of that, he was also giving like a motivational speech and talking about mindset and all this stuff. And I was just like, well, and I could speak a little bit of Portuguese at that time. And I was like, I can't believe we're getting this. And then we literally went every day and they invited us to eat lunch. You know, they were like very welcoming and I couldn't believe it. And I trained with Solo, uh, trained with Shanji, um, you know, and it was just like immediately had a big impact on me. And I remember rushing to the mall to get to a cyber cafe to write my dad an email and tell him about that experience. Yeah. And um, and anyways, I stayed in touch with Solo. Um, and then I said, man, the next time you go back to the U.S., please let us know. We'd love to have you come to Oklahoma. Uh, it was like February 04. Now the next year, he uh, he stays in touch. He lets me know. And he says, I'm going to come to the U.S. I'd like to make you the first stop before I go do my other other places. So he literally came from Brazil straight to Oklahoma. And he had a seminar on Saturday. He arrived like Tuesday. Didn't need to do that. He could have arrived Friday night, did a seminar Saturday, left. He came on like Tuesday. Uh, I was in college at the time. Um, I'm 19 going on 20 and, uh, or no, I'm 20 going on 21. Uh, I'm in college because my dad, he, I, I didn't like college at all. Um, uh, I did really good in high school. I was almost valedictorian of my class. I did really good in high school. As soon as high school was over, I was done. I just wanted jujitsu. I just wanted to compete, fight accomplished my goals. That was it. I did not enjoy college one bit. Uh, I wasn't in the scene. I wasn't, I never partied. I never did any of that. I didn't play any sports. Well, I think, I I think you told me you didn't even have a drink until you were in your late twenties, early thirties, mid twenties, yeah. uh, 25. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, just 100% focused on my goals. So I did not enjoy college. Every second I was in college, I was just thinking about, I got to go train. I want to, I want to do other things. So anyways, solo comes, he comes on Tuesday and he's just hanging out and training with us every day, basically giving me free private lessons. He did have his own private lessons, um, but when it came to training with me, he's like, oh, let's go train. We trained for like two hours, bunch of roles. He would show me stuff and was just so giving with his time. And then during that week, he's staying with my dad. I had an apartment, small apartment. Um, you know, we played chess, 
we're talking, we're hanging out. He came, I remember he came over to my apartment one day and uh, I'm like showing him my matches and I'm asking him, oh, what would you have done there? And da, 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 we're watching video and he's like, hey, what do you want? I said, I want to be a black belt world champion. And he's like, okay, why are you in college? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, because my dad wants me to. My dad wants me to. And he's like, uh, you should just drop out. You should stop going to school and train full time. You can do it. He was one of the first people like that to say, you can do it. Go for it. And he's like, why don't you go to Brazil? Train with me and my brother every day. Train with our team there. Do all the competitions and go for it. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds good. I like that. I want to do that. And, uh, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I was like, that's what I wanted to do. Now I have him telling me to do it. And I'm having him also tell me, go there and train, get all the access, all the competitions, everything. Right after he left, like a week later, I sit my parents down and have a conversation with them. And I tell them, look, I don't want to go to school. This is not what I want to do. Uh, uh, that will be there forever. But I'm this age, this athletic ability right now, I'm ready to go. I, I can't look back and wonder what if I need to go all in. I don't want to go to school anymore. And uh, man, they were pretty resistant, especially my dad. Yeah. But then I'm like, hey, dad, <laughs> uh, what'd you expect? You know what I mean? Look at you. You went all in. He's only did his passion. He was a professional organist. He's a musician. He loved music. He loves martial arts. He, I've only watched my dad live his passion. I never saw him work a regular nine to five. Yeah. I never saw him do anything he didn't want to do. And then he's telling me to go to school to become an accountant or a lawyer or whatever and make good money and be a professional. I'm like, that's not what I want to do, dad. You know, I want to live my passion. And finally he got it. And then uh, after some resistance, he said, okay, I understand, but you got to go back to school <laughs> at some point. That uh, still hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but uh, everything worked out. Yeah, but um, I, I is your dad still alive? He is. Yeah, he's yeah. Is he still waiting? Like, hey, what are you going to do? He hasn't brought it up. I think uh, you know he he saw. Okay, business wise, things are different now. We're doing good. So my dad, um, one of the deals was that I like uh, my dad was an attorney. My brother's uh, my brother practices. My other brother went to law school. So like that was kind of our family deal. So my dad was like you know thought that because I hadn't gone to law school. Like I hadn't completed everything. And I remember when I retired from the NFL, he's like, well, it's time to go back to law school. And uh, I did not go. And so I remember like, you know, right before he passed away, he's like, yeah. So that was always in the back of my mind. Oh, but wow. yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So you totally get it. Um, but yeah, I dropped out of college, racked up a bunch of credit card debt, flew to Brazil and lived there for four months. Right then, right like literally a month later. Was this in Rio or? Yeah, Rio? I lived in Rio. I had a, a sponsor um, on the mat.com. Uh, they were kind of like the first group of gringos to go to, to Brazil and like document jujitsu, film their own videos and follow. They did like documentaries and follow teams and some of the guys that were coming up, the big name guys. And, and I loved that website. I loved what they were doing. Um, 
and I used to order videos from them and then they figured out who I was. I met, I met them at some competitions and they started sponsoring me mm. and they had a, like a connection house. So they basically had a house in Brazil that they advertised to gringos. If you want to go to Brazil to train or compete, you can stay in our house and we'll help set you up and, and, you know, let you know how it works. Um, the, the main guy, the owner, his name is Scott Nelson, Scotty. Um, he spoke Portuguese and and he was in and he knew what was going on. He lived in Brazil. And, uh, and so they made it easier for gringos to come, especially if you were going by yourself. Um, you kind of want a friend, you know, yeah. in a third world country. Um, so the house was there and he basically just said, Hey, just pay the bills. Um, and you can stay in the house, um, free of charge. Like I didn't have to pay rent. Um, but, um, yeah, I just dropped everything and went and that was it all in. And, um, and that was 2004. I was still a brown belt. I got my black belt when I came back home. And then a couple years later, I was black belt world champion because of solo. Of course, Shanji too. Shanji at that time, we were more like training partners. He yeah. wasn't really teaching. He wasn't a coach. He wasn't, he wasn't the leader that he is today yet. We were both coming up, you know? Sure. And, um, and that made it amazing too, because Salo was still competing, but Salo was the teacher, the, the coach, the everything. He was the, the mentor, the guru, the older brother, well, almost he's, like an uncle. He's got to be what, 50? No. Probably. Getting there. Yeah, he's probably pretty Oh, close. actually he is. Yeah. yeah, you're right. He's nine years older than me. Yeah. And I just turned 40. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's, yeah, he, he's the age of my older brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, so Shanji is what, like seven years? Four, like yeah. Seven, seven years, years younger, younger than, than okay. Solo. Um, so Solo beat us up. He led everything and he told us what to do. And we just listened to Solo. That's uh, exactly what uh, Victor said. Yeah. That Solo beat the shit out of him. Oh yeah. He beat the shit out of every, everybody. Yeah. Everybody around. Everyone was scared to death of Solo. Um, just like they were scared to death of my dad. So I had like another scary dad and this one happened to be brazilian little crazy and uh was a world <laughs> champion multiple time um but uh but i was prepared for it i was ready for it i was ready for that like tough love never get any praise even when you do good you actually did bad you know uh i was ready for that um my dad prepared me but um but yeah, so Solo was still competing. So I got to be around in this amazing time where Solo's legacy had already been made. And he's kind of at the end of his, his um, you know, competition era. And then Shanji's now coming up in his. And Shanji was a little ahead of me. He got his black belt a couple years before me. Um, and he was already doing good, but he hadn't won his first world championship yet. Mm -hmm. His first world championship he won in 2004, the same year that I went and lived in Brazil for four months I trained with Shanji every single day, multiple times a day when he went on that run. Mm -hmm. And I was still a brown belt. And then I got my black belt. And then a couple years later, now I'm winning everything. And I'm, I, I, I become a world champion. And so it's just a beautiful experience. And just the fact that I got so close to them. And I am forever, forever grateful. Like I, I can get emotional if I really sit and think about it and talk about it, because now we're 20 years, this is 20 years ago. Um, like Solo never asked me to pay him $1, mm. not $1 for a class, for anything. Um, and the very first time I went, because they also, oddly enough, I was born in Ohio. They had a home base in the U.S. Their first home base in the U.S. was in Ohio, in Toledo, Ohio, of all places. 
rough. Yeah, no, I've I've been to Toledo. It's not a it's not what I would think about as a destination here in America, especially for a Brazilian <laughs> coming from Rio to, to yeah. Toledo. Yes. Oh boy. Um, but in 2005, they started uh, kind of like transitioning more to staying in the U.S. full time. What? Uh, how was it like? Why Toledo? They already had a network ah. there, so gotcha. I think the very first time Solo came to the U.S. He did a seminar tour across the Midwest and just kind of planted some seeds that grew. And so he already had a home base school set up there. Um, and so in 2005, uh, you know, Sala was like, hey, um, why don't you come out to Ohio and do a training camp with us for the Pan Ams and for everything that was coming up? And, and I'm like, OK. And I remember going and being so nervous because, um, number one, it's like I'm just with them now. There's not like a team or whatever. And I had I didn't even know where I was gonna stay. I was like, all right, I'm coming. But I in back of my mind, I'm like, am I getting a hotel? Like, is he gonna have me stay with somebody else? Like, what's gonna happen? And him and Shanji just had this little two-bedroom apartment, one bathroom, small, small apartment there. And uh and he picked me up from the airport, and sure enough, I he goes right, we go right to his place, to their apartment, and uh, and he's like, Yeah, you'll just uh you know, he had like a little mattress he put on the floor in, in the living room. He's like, yeah, yeah, you stay there. I'm like, okay. Never asked me for one thing. And uh, so I'm much love, much love to Solo and, and Shanji as well, of course. No, I. Um, but he changed my life. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. And now back to the show. I can think of all the guys that trained me when I was young. You know, obviously the NFL was a little bit different, but coming up through it, you know, I'm, people never asked me for anything. You know, just come in and work hard. And like working hard was the receipt. And the way you repaid them was by taking the knowledge and doing something great with it. Mm-hmm. And like I always think there's a really interesting thing with um, like mentorship and that where all of a sudden once money starts changing hands and there's like a weird sense of entitlement. And yeah. like all of a sudden the, it changes into a business relationship more so than like a mentor deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then also you're giving your time, which is valuable. Right. So like now I'm yeah, like you're giving putting a price on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like working with Victor and these guys, mm-hmm. you know, same mm-hmm. deal. Like I, you know, the only thing I ask is just come in and work hard. Yeah. Like, um, uh, they've never come in and been like, ah, oh, we're not doing this today or this. I mean, that's why I don't really want to train NFL players and professional athletes anymore. There was just a weird sense of entitlement and yeah. what happens when money starts changing hands Yeah, and you just want, you know, like be the best, just mm-hmm. go out there. Like seeing what Victor did, at worlds was like and i i you know i know you know as we were there it was like like proud parents mm-hmm. you know i saw the look on you and shanji's face and like feeling like you know here's somebody we've invested in mm-hmm. and to see him go out and do that like i mean you were the first person that jumped out of your out of your seat when he had won so it was neat to see and it was neat to be a part of for me you know because it's a new world for me yeah but also seeing how you know that they're good kids and they uh they're not fucking assholes yeah it's the most important part. Which is um, is it really interesting with this generation of kids. You know, there's a weird sense of entitlement in social media and I want everything now. And to meet kids that aren't like that is uh, it's very rare. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What um, uh, what do you think Salo, I mean, obviously he had a certain work ethic 
and a mindset. Um, you know, what I know of Shanji and, you know, the stories of Salo, I've never met him. Hopefully one day we can get him here on the podcast. Um, but very cerebral. Mm -hmm. uh, like his approach to it was different. Like, what is it about him that was so different? Well, um, he was super complete. Um, and remember that he did move up the weight classes. And so he was a world champion the first time as a lightweight, um, and then would go all the way up to super heavy. So he had just this incredible understanding of, all the different games and styles and he was so complete he could he could pull guard he could take down good takedown guys um and he could pass the best guards um he had incredible top pressure he uh trained a lot of judo which is very common for guys from manaus yeah um to come up as kids training judo and then transition into jiu-jitsu uh but uh he always spoke about time the time that he spent with hickson it was something like he was supposed to go to train with Hickson for like a week or two weeks. I don't know. So a very short amount of time, like six days. And then it turned into like six months. Mm. He just stayed. He didn't leave. Um, and he spent an extensive am amount of time with Hickson and had this incredible life-changing kind of game-changing experience. And he was already a world champion at that time. Uh, but the way that he spoke about it is just like Hickson was on another level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that was his kind of moment that elevated him to an, another, you know, another level uh, within his own practice. And he just, I mean, number one, he, he was a smasher. Uh, I mean, he, his pressure was insane and he had this kind of tank body, a little wider, shorter, uh, much different than Shanji and, and myself. You know, Shanji was kind of like an in-between. So Shanji's a little taller than Salo, of course, but not as tall as me. So we kind of had these different bodies. But um, Salo was just, uh, he's an amazing expert at, at understanding like, this is what you do. I'm not going to let you do what you want to do. Mm. You're not going to get anywhere. You want this and I know how to shut it down. To where you can't do the thing that you love to do the most. I can neutralize you. I always He always neutralized first and foremost. He taught me this. And then once you don't have what you want. And you're trying to figure out now what your plan B is. And now you're uh, going outside of what you're best at. And say, okay, none of this works. Now I got to go over here and try this or whatever. He would see your mistake. He would see the opening that you literally kind of opened up yourself. Mm -hmm. And then once you made a mistake and he got a little bit ahead of you, there was no coming back. Mm -hmm. And he would just throttle you from then from then on. Um, and he was so good at, at, at looking at everybody and saying, oh, I know how to play this guy. Mm -hmm. I know how to play him. I know how to play them. I know what to do with that game. I know what to do with this game. And it always had the most simplest answer. He could bring it down to the simplest little thing that you wanted to overcomplicate. Oh, but I could do all these things here to try to stop that. And he's like, no, why don't you just do this? And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. That works. That's perfect. And his body positioning and awareness uh, inside of that, he knew where to be right when he had to be there. And he could take up the smallest amount of space and he could keep you from getting the smallest amount of space. Uh, it's just in incredible. Um, his defense, 
you if you did happen to get into a good position, maybe he let you, right? Or, or we did specific training, we started there. Um, you would feel helpless, even though you were in the dominant position in the better place, he could make you feel helpless. Like, well, I can't do anything with this. There's nothing here. Even though I'm in a good place, there's still nothing here. And once again, you would kind of like, ah, and then you're looking for something to do. And he was skate. Hmm. Um, you know, Shanji's defensive awareness, Shanji's frames, um, you know, his ability to create space and survive under pressure. Mine as well. I mean, we were both greatly influenced by Saul. I mean, he was, he was our master. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then we're at the same time, Shanji and I are both developing our own styles and our own ways. And then now we have these three minds working together and then we helped each other evolve a lot collectively. But, uh, but Saul was just like, yeah, he didn't make mistakes. And if you made one, it was done. It was over. Um, and beyond that, as a competitor, he really could get inside your head. He knew how to break you. Mm. He knew how to how to make you question yourself inside of a match where maybe it was two top level guys, even skills, even physical ability, everything like that. He could get you here. He beat you here. Mm -hmm. And then it would show itself in uh, you know, in the technique and, and everything else. Um, but it was amazing, 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 amazing. I never, still to this day, I, I haven't seen or experienced something like that. You know, like it's just, uh, for me, he has the closest thing to perfect jujitsu. I mean, I would say I've trained with Hajar. I've spent time with Hajar and uh, very much the same. Sh Shanji's like that too. I mean, well, of course, um, Shanji's the same. Uh, one of my favorite moments, and uh, this is purely just because I've, I've experienced this myself. Um, I was I watched uh, Hodger Gracie on uh, Lex Friedman's podcast, mm -hmm. and he was up there talking this. And then the minute that that uh, Lex asked him about Shanji, his entire demeanor changes. And uh, at that moment, I, I even said to Shanji, "I was like, I knew I was in the right place." Yeah, because I do that to people. You know, there are guys that I played against that were in the Hall of Fame, whatever, and I'm sure in the same way. So, um, you know, and the fact that Shanji competed at such a high level. Yeah, I mean, but real recognize real. Oh. <laughs> yeah no i mean it's uh it, it's good and, and what i appreciate um especially with shanji you know uh whenever we talk about it or he, he demos things he always gives you a practical application mm -hmm. like hey i use this at this right. and so there's a lot of like steeping and grounding mm -hmm. in it and it's um it's very simple yeah you know he's like we don't do anything complex he's like it's it, it's very classic it's very pressure heavy it's it's very close like he he got into this whole thing about like different styles of jujitsu and these guys do this mm -hmm. and he's like we do the we do the classics we do the basics it's side control it's pressure yeah. it's smash but what what you grow to understand is like the simple being so greatly effective with the simple is incredibly complex oh. it's incredibly complex and people they can't see it like that uh, it, it's difficult. You ha I think it takes so many revolutions, right, of like the 10,000 hours, the mastery, yeah. as you go through over and over and over again. Like how many years have you been training athletes, you know, from yourself being an athlete to now all these rotations, these decades of you hitting 10,000 plus hours over and over and over, mastery, mastery, mastery. Now you can take a simple lift, a simple exercise and you're seeing things that you didn't see or maybe not even need to see before because you're young or whatever. Well, right? uh, 
I had a really um, unique experience in that I retired from the NFL, or actually I, I got hurt in my 10th year in the NFL, came home and had surgery, and I was sitting on the couch. Greg Glassman, who started CrossFit, called me on the phone and asked me if I would come help them develop their tech on how to train athletes. And um, I think 30 days later, we launched a website, we launched a program. I didn't know shit about programming. I didn't know anything about training athletes. And then 30 days later, um, I put the program at, and it got like 17,000 hits. And all of a sudden, people had a buzz, and they were like, you got to teach a seminar. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with a seminar on the fly, went and taught it, and then I taught 36 seminars that next year. Wow. And proceeded to teach hundreds of seminars around the globe. And I got every weekend, I got 20 to 50 new people. Mm-hmm. And over time, you see that many people fast, you end up just developing a system in real time. Yeah. And I look for patterns, mm-hmm. you know, like not in a autistic, but more like an OCD kind of way. But you start looking at things and then, you know, you're giving away free program and you're watching people that are coming to the seminar. The people that are doing your stuff can do all of this stuff. And then you sit down and you're like, what am I trying to do? And for me, it was fostering developing athleticism. I had this idea of challenging posture position and using the model of athleticism. And I knew how to do it based off of axes of rotation, movement, you know, planes of motion like mm-hmm. we did yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, we were doing something sagittal. Then all of a sudden we did something rotational and I started creating all these training systems. And then I'd push them out and push them out for free. And there were thousands of people doing the program that were giving me input. Mm-hmm. So in a way, uh, I was able to do probably the equivalent of 20 PhDs and 700, right. you know, hundreds of podcasts talking to people like yourself yeah. and the smartest people to ever walk the earth and going out and teaching people all over the world. And, you know, yeah, but that was still decades ago. Right? Well, yeah. So now, yeah. How many times through it's the, the amount yeah. of, of practical application working with people in real time. There's mm-hmm. no way to replicate it. And it's kind of like it's kind of like what you're talking about. Right. Like. Like, uh, you know, you're picking up a phone book trying to get to Brazil and get there. And these, I mean, it's you're, you're, you're talking about an experience that could almost never be recreated. Yeah. And the other one is that you're at an age where you're going to roll four, three, four times a day as a father and a business owner. And this, I know you train a ton, but it's not like you're just sitting around, you know, eating cereal and being like, oh, you, <laughs> you want to go out in the garage and roll? And yeah. it, it's just, it's, uh, it's like a different time. But, yeah. um, you, you brought up the 10,000 hours. I would love to, have seen like how many hours it took you to go from like, you know, when you thought you were pretty good, you know, training with like, you know, within the Muchado kind of deal. And then you meet Salo on them and it kind of takes you to this. I wondered like how much time the blocks were, if you could sit down and quantify them, it's yeah. way more than 10,000 hours. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, now this is my 19th year as a black belt. So I think about how many hours I've hit just as a black belt, you know, I've, I'm more than double the amount of time, as a black belt than what I was not as a black belt yeah. um, in my, in my jujitsu journey. And um, you know, it's amazing. I still feel like I'm getting better all the time. I'm still learning, evolving. I mean, jujitsu itself as a whole is constantly evolving, but then me in my own personal practice and what I do um, technically in my vision, the way I see, the way I communicate um, all of that, I feel is consistently getting better every single day week, month, year. Uh, you know, I'm older now for sure. Uh, just turned 40, but I still think even me now at 40 beats me five years ago, uh, mm-hmm. 35. I mean, the 21 year old kid that got his black belt. Oh my God. I would smash that kid. I would smash that kid. What, uh, if you could define your style, you know, you talked about solo in terms of being very cerebral, a lot of pressure in this and different stuff. If you could describe your style, uh, compared to like Salo, Shanji, like mm-hmm. how do you define yourself? Well, it's very similar. Um, 
in, in many ways, but then very different in others. We have the same philosophy, the same principles as far as the timeless style. Uh, that's what I love to preach, you know, timeless jujitsu. That's dude. Mine. I, if, if you guys don't follow his Instagram and if you're into jits, you need to, because, uh, I'll actually watch it before class and then I try to whatever. If you're showing something, I try to use it in class that day and it's actually paid good dividends for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And you you told me a story. Dude, about, your ex-choke was great. We got to circle back to that because okay. I have a I have an amazing story for you on that. But, uh, um, you know, the time is, I think, like, if, if you look at all the greats in, in any sport, um, even maybe even in the arts, um, artists, they they talk about how they come back to the fundamentals, the basics, and they, they think, oh, I need to do this at the highest level possible because that's what's going to stand the test of time. And um, and they get so good at a simple, once again, simple, but they get so good at that that it becomes unstoppable, right? And it, and it transcends the different generations that come and are in their face or whatever, years and years and years throughout years and years and years and they can still work they can still fire this off um you know i, I michael jordan was a huge inspiration to me uh, but you know when he's when he stopped being able to fly and jump over everybody i mean he still could a little bit what did he get so good at that fadeaway jumper you know that simple fadeaway jumper um and some of the just basic ways that you know he could read and set up you know all that stuff so Salo and Shanji are very much in line with, I mean, they inspire me to be that way, 100%. I was a, I was kind of the modern guy uh, in, in the group between the three of us. I explored a lot of the different games and I would I would try different things and and kind of come to them. And, and every now and then I would, you know, find something that had worked really well for me and and, uh, and they would kind of get into it and want to want to play with it a little bit. But they were, uh, they were a little more... Um, fix already and I was just because of how I came up learning from so many different people all the time traveling here traveling there I was very open to receiving any new technique or information and, and trying it so I was more of the experimenter I studied a lot of video mm -hmm. and a lot of times they would come and ask me hey what what is how does this game work or what does that guy like to do I mean Shanji talks about this all the time I, I could cite the year the match you know, I, you tell me a technique, I can think of like a, a moment like in competition where that technique was used, who did it, what year it was, what I, I was like a, a nerd. I'm a jiu-jitsu nerd. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stemmed from all those notebooks and everything that I was doing the way I came up. And um, so my game, I had some some good things, but then I had I had a lot of holes when I started training with Solomon Shanji. And at the same time, I was still finding new things when they were already kind of, they did what they did. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of got this nice little mix of, of all the different um, people that inspired me, people that I trained with, competed against, the games that I ran into, the games that I tried, all these different things. And that's kind of me, but the core of who I am is the same as them. The timeless style, pressure. We have we must have a good guard that needs to be dangerous. You need to be dangerous off your back. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to attack submissions. Uh, a lot of the 
game nowadays, as far as the bottom game, the guard game, is just to score because of the evolution of the sport, to put mm-hmm. points on the board and be the first to score. Um, and there's not as many submission-oriented um dangerous guards out there that what they're that as what there was in my days coming up um but we must be dangerous off our back we must be able to finish we do need to have the capacity to sweep somebody of course to score and if we can't finish them off our back we're going to finish them in a dominant position so then we will get on top and then have incredible pressure that can melt through any guard that exists by making them tired because the flexible um you know dangerous guards that exist and ones that can kind of tie you up the only way you're going to pass them is with pressure uh, by making them tired getting their legs tired and getting them to a point where there's there's no coming back right and so a lot of that is ends with mounting um getting in their half guard mounting them smothering them and finishing them with a basic technique a basic uh submission and um, the goal is to not move backwards at all. Once I'm on top and I'm in a good spot and I'm there, there is no coming back. Um, the finish may still be several minutes away, several steps away, but it's inevitable, just like chess. If you're with a grandmaster playing chess against a grandmaster, a master, whatever, they're, if they're higher level than you, you have no chance, especially once they've gotten to a certain point in the game you can't win. Sure. And that's the goal to be that precise and that efficient with your movements that you don't go backwards. And on top of that, what they taught me, I always think with chess, um, they memorize every single movement. Like, Hey, if you start here and it's like, they've like, they've seen everything. Let's say there's the responses. Yeah. There's like 54,000, you know, variations that they go Mm -hmm. to. And I wonder, um, and, and, you know, obviously my jujitsu journey is very like new, um, I constantly think about it like that, where yeah. I'm like, you know, and then you, you know, this is how I'm going to start. Mm-hmm. And then like this, you know. D- I d- call d- it the funnel. Yeah, There's a million ways the match can go in the beginning. I pull guard, you pull guard, you stand left leg forward or right leg forward. You like to wrestle takedown or judo takedown, uh, whatever. Well, there's so many variables and options once it starts. As soon as we lock up and we begin the goal is to make the game smaller and shorter and smaller and shorter to where once I get to that point, you're in my funnel. Mm-hmm. You're in my best positions where I understand all your reactions, your responses. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. I can see it. I can feel it. I'm going to be a step ahead of you every way throughout until the funnel comes to the very end and you're going to get submitted one of three different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me personally, it's a cross choke from out or an arm bar from out, um, a Kimura or something on your back, like an RNC or a collar choke from the back. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to kind of just take all your pieces and then put you in checkmate um, the most dominating way possible. That's solo style mm-hmm. domination to take all your pieces, beat you in every position and then show extreme dominance by submitting you from mount with cross choke. That's what he did to me over and over and over and, and over. And you knew it was coming and, and you still over. couldn't stop it. And he would judo throw me so hard and smash me and choke me and finish me. And I have to get up. And these days when we were in Ohio, as I said, it was just the three of us and I was living with them. 
I was staying in their apartment. And we were all, I mean, me and Shanji were both scared to death of Solo. And we had no idea what. Are you guys still scared of Solo? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Because uh, uh, Arash was scared to death of him when he, he met should Solo. Be. He should be. Uh, if you're not at a level, <laughs> you should be scared of Solo. Okay. Um, but, uh, oh, it's, it's so amazing. It's so amazing. I got an amazing story for you later. But, um, you know, like. Sala would say when he would just decide, okay, I mean, whenever he got up, that's when we went train. We didn't know what time it was going to be. We didn't know what was going on. He'd get up, boom. We had no idea what the training was going to be like. You didn't know anything until Salo said what we were going to do. And then we would start. You didn't know when it would end. You know, uh, he would say, okay, now we got enough rounds. I mean, we would just go so hard every single day, four hours, and just the three of us, and the bike. The bike was the the way to even to make it four, right? Because there's three of us. So when two people were in, the other one was on the bike. Uh-huh. And uh, the Airdyne. Oh, the Airdyne. Airdyne. Okay. And if Sal and Shanji were I going. Love I, I am a, uh, a true Airdyne fan. The yes. Concentric, yeah, I mean, What's funny something. is I grew to hate it so much, but now I have one at my house and I do it every day. Like, uh, Me too. It's, it's <laughs> I, I, I have, I'm in the gym. I have them there. Uh, I just got new ones, uh, yeah. the Echo Bikes. Yes, so I have the Echo I, too. Rogue I Echo. have the uh, old Assault Bikes that I've tuned up mm-hmm. and I'm going to drop them off at the boys' house uh-huh. at uh, at Victor and uh, Arash and then also at uh, Fleep's house. Nice. So they have one. Yeah. yeah. And then you're going to make them FaceTime you yeah. and show and, you. And I'll be like, on. you got to do your zone too. We got to do intervals. You got to yeah. do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if Solo did not hear those blades going the way they should, he would he would stop in the mat in the round with Shanji and yell at me and tell me, pick it up, go, what are you doing? You know, just with a lot of cuss words and, and demoralizing uh, language. <laughs> um, and so then, and then I, I would jump in. And at some point, I'm going to go back to back, right? I'm going to be in, go with Shanji. Mm-hmm. And then Shanji's going to go out. Salo's going to come in and go with me. And so, you know, I'm a new black belt. Shanji's a world champion becoming the best in the world. You know, he's about to be a multiple-time absolute world champion. Solo is Solo. And then there's little me, right? And uh, I'm obviously the weakest link in this room. And my good round of everything that I had was maybe, maybe me not getting submitted in a 10-minute round or just getting submitted once, right? But then that's everything I got. And guess who's about to come out next with a 30 seconds rest? Solo. And with no mercy, no mercy whatsoever, however tired I was. I mean, I remember my, I couldn't even grip. I remember just being broke. He would just throw me down Try to make me tap by smother, by pressure. And I never, not one time, did I ever tap from pure pressure. And I think if I did, if I ever did He would have thrown you out. He would, I would never, it would have been it. It would have been over. Uh, I don't think you should tap from pressure. I mean, it sucks. It sucks really bad. It can suck really bad. I know why people do it. And if if I've had students tap because of that. And I would stop them right there and I give them a, a motivational speech. Yeah. And I and I tell them, hey, you can survive this. You can do this. What can you focus on? Focus on this little inch that's there. Make that inch a little bigger. Get a little more space. 
get things back in, get to home base, breathe, stay calm. You know, I give him that. Solo never gave me that talk. (laughs) I never got one positive motivational speech from Solo. If it was a motivational speech, it had a little bit of a. Yeah, get your fucking head out of your ass. Yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah, Yeah, I grew up with two older brothers, too. I know the deal. But uh, he would just whip my ass so bad. And uh, yeah, but I survived. And anyways, that was when I said, I want to be able to do that <laughs> to everybody else. You were talking about my game development, my style, the difference of all of our styles and stuff. It was in that moment. And he literally had the best style to deal with someone like me. Uh, my long, flexible, I was a guard player coming up. And people know me now as all this pressure. But when I first got my black belt, I was a guard guy. I was a guard kid. I was one of those guys that wanted to pull guard every match. And I won with my guard. I had a pretty good little outside pass. And if I got the side control, I'd try to keep me worried you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my thing. Or a Bravo choke. I, I had a good little Bravo choke too. Um, I didn't know how to mount. I didn't really understand what real pressure was until my time with Solo and Shanji. And when I felt what they were doing to me, I said, man, I need this in my arsenal. I want to be able to do this to other people. And that's when I grew to start developing my pressure, you know, learn and understand and and make my own pressure with my own body type and style. And, um, and so I was already a black belt before I really made that circle back to the Mount, you know, and start that mastery process. Um, but that's, uh, that's what I love to do the most nowadays. And, uh, and I, I've, I've gone through my guard so many times. I know what serves me best mm-hmm. as far as going with these young kids, what guards I can go to, um, you know, and how I move. I got rid of a lot of stuff. You know, I don't, I don't do everything that I used to do. It's simpler, but not. And, um, and the other thing that, that I learned from Solo and Shanji was just having incredible defense incredible defense um the way they 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 could survive these bad positions because they were literally putting each other there all the time and we did a lot of specific training um i i didn't have a lot of experience with specific training until them we would always every every one of those days in ohio or whatever later on when when we were in san diego and they moved there um there was always some specific training in every single session um you know whether it was escapes starting someone on your back, side control, mount, half guard smash, stuff like that, starting with specific guards, um, starting in situations where we need to score in a short amount of time, different things like that. We did a lot of specific training, and I think that is so valuable for your progression, especially if you're in a room where you're better than everybody. You must do specific training. We do it – I mean, that's the majority of our stuff is very, uh, like, situational specific. Yeah. Hey, we're doing this. I mean, we're very free. I mean, it's, it's actually very rare that we actually do kind of, like, open mat. Right. From the day, but it's always situational. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's the same stuff we did in the NFL. Yeah. Like, these are our situations. This is, uh, you know, first and ten, you know, second and third, red zone, and this. I mean, so for me, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how anybody else does it, but, I mean, that's – you know, because um, I'm only trained at one other place I did when I was up in Montana. I went to mm-hmm. the Straight Blast Gym. Uh-huh. And uh, it was funny because Shanji asked me, he's like, oh, how what was uh, gringo jujitsu like? <laughs> and my only thing was there was no hugs. Uh-huh. Like, uh, it's not uh, it's not jujitsu unless there's like 25 hugs. You know, because uh, <laughs> Philippe hugs me. Everybody, like, it's just a lot of hugs. Yeah. And so, uh, but it's 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 an interesting family environment 
that uh, like once you get into it, it just like like you almost feel like if you don't show up, people are going to call you and people do. I mm -hmm. mean, if I miss class, people are like, how come you weren't there? Yeah. I was coming for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Earlier in our conversation, you asked what what it was about jujitsu or why jujitsu. That is why. I mean, of course, the art itself is amazing, beautiful. You can give your whole life to it and still keep learning. I mean, yeah. what else? What else is like that? You know, it's just incredible how like you're you can live jujitsu and and then you how you can plug it into your your everyday life you know the all the lessons the themes of uh being a forever student and being able to stay calm under pressure sure. controlling your breathing problem solving patience i mean all these things it's life but then you talk about the community, the yeah. people, and they're all going through this incredible transformation as well because of what jujitsu does for your life. And then the energy on the mats just becomes so special um, because we're all doing this individually, but then as a family, you know, yeah. together. And, um, and 100%, you know, at this stage in my life, where I can look around and I can see guys, my students, my training partners, Shanji, you know, all these incredible people that have now been in my life for decades, 10 years, 15, 20 plus, 25. I mean, I have one of my most OG black belts in Oklahoma. He's been training with me for 25 years. We were kids. We grew up together. Wow. And man, that brotherhood, the, the family, the community, you know, it's like, th that's my family. And, um, and I mean, you, when you love what you do and you're with people that you love as you're doing it, the love is just, that's why we hug each other so much yeah. and we beat the shit out of each other too. <laughs> uh, do you think growing up as an only child, uh, meeting Shanji and Salo and them kind of like adding you as like a third brother kind of filled something in a lot of ways? Because I mean, I, I grew up with two older brothers and, uh, I can't imagine not having my older brothers. I mean, we yeah. live out here in Texas. They're still back in California. I still talk to my brother at almost, you know, every day, if not every other day, we text all the time. But like that kind of camaraderie and that shared suffering yes. and what you guys went through, like that kind of added a piece to your life that maybe you've been missing. Definitely, definitely. And um, also just like, I didn't have a lot of extended family around either. Uh, um, so, you know, it was kind of the type where my dad also became a father figure to a lot of the students when I was younger. You know, he helped a lot of people and he brought them, you know, if someone didn't have a place for Thanksgiving or Christmas, they would come over to our house and eat eat uh, Christmas dinner with us or whatever. And sure. he was very opening and welp welcoming um, to uh, to help people and and, uh, you know, be that other thing. We're not just we're not just teaching martial arts. Right. We're, we're we, we have to be there to help people through life. And um, and he, he did that. And so I naturally grew close because I was in the school every day. I mean, uh, my dad had to be there every day and I wanted to be around my dad. And so I would naturally be at the school and just I would train and do all the classes that I could. And if I wasn't doing something, I was just hanging out there. And I naturally am around the other students all the time. And they were my brothers and sisters. Um, that was the family. And, um, and it just, it's just grown. And now, I mean, 
literally worldwide. Um, I have people that I've been doing jujitsu and stayed in contact and seen at events and tournaments and all that stuff that come to train with me in my home. I've trained with them at their home all over the world for a long, long time. And uh, that's just another layer to it. I mean, you have the ones close to you and then, you know, then there's the surrounding states and then it just kind of goes all the way out to worldwide. I mean, I have some really, really good friends in, uh, in Europe and obviously Brazil um, people that, you know, you share blood, sweat and tears with, um, it, it takes it up a notch. I mean, it doesn't matter. Maybe we don't talk to each other every day. Right. But as soon as we see each other, we're around each other. It's just this incredible energy. And, uh, and that's one of the best parts about what I do. Obviously it's the people and the fact that I can literally go anywhere in the world. And there's probably someone right there that I already kind of consider family, mm. um, anywhere. And, and if not, if it happens to be a place where there isn't that person, it probably won't take me very long yeah, to, plant, to plant the seed and, and start that relationship with somebody new. And then next thing you know, years pass. And then we look back and we say, oh, man, remember how we met or whatever is random, da, 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 this and that. It's, it's freaking beautiful. The, uh, obviously, the jujitsu and the martial arts influenced you. What was the move to MMA? Well, that was me tapping into the younger me, the JKD me, uh, the the complete martial artist me. Um, of course, jiu-jitsu came along and I loved it so much and I set my goals and it was my passion. But the whole while I was doing the sport of jiu-jitsu, I knew that at some point as a martial artist, I had to fight MMA. Mm. And I didn't know how much I would do. I just knew that, okay, I at least got to do one. Like sure. I have to do at least one. Who am I as a martial artist? If I can, I mean, I never had any sort of street fight or confrontation or any, I mean, literally the first fight I ever had in my life was my first professional MMA fight. Wow. Um, and so I'd always kind of wondered, and of course I trained with a lot of fighters. We had our own fighters and it was just like, okay, it's time for me. As soon as jujitsu started to not give me the fire where it was, I was a little too comfortable. I was going against the same guys all the time, the same tournaments. I didn't, I wasn't always extremely inspired. Mm. You know, that there was some days where I show up at an event and I kind of was only there because I felt like I needed to be there. Sure. Because that's what I did from the time I was 15 to 31 is when I had my first MMA fight. It was Pan Ams and Worlds, you know, or, or some variation. Okay, I'm going to Brazil, compete there, then the Worlds. And worlds every single year. And it just kind of started to lose its fire. And the game was evolving a little bit too to where some things were happening that just made it less fun. Like the ability to stall, 50-50 was coming around and some of these things where I was just like, man, I remember having a couple of, of tournaments where I really kind of like felt like, man, I actually want to hit somebody. I wish I could hit you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. you know, and uh, and that's when it really hit me. It's like, OK, it's time for MMA. Let's do it. Let's do it. New challenge out of the comfort zone. Let's start over. And while I still have my body and some good athletic ability, let's um, put it towards something different. And I did my first fight. Um, and I actually right after that fight, um, like a month later, um, I received my my first major injury the only surgery i've ever had in my life is a pec tear 
Mm. Um, that was actually with tra- training with Shanji. I was getting ready for a big professional jujitsu match. And I was overdoing it and I wasn't getting the rest I should have. And now I'm like in my 30s. I just turned 31. And um, and he was yanking my arm for a Kimura. And it, it was it barely even moved. It wasn't anywhere near finishing uh, range. Um, it just pop that much. Bop, and my pec tendon completely tore off the bone. And uh, and so for the first time in a long time, the pause button got put on. And I just did my first fight. And then I now I'm recovering and I'm thinking, man, I might not come back the same. I'm in my thirties. What am I going to do? Because I'm going to need to start to zero in. I, I like, I made the mistake of fighting MMA and going right back to jujitsu tournaments. Like nothing happened. And obviously MMA is a different animal. Sure. Um, the training camps, the, the mental stress, everything. So I was like, I need to be more careful and focused with my energy and what I'm doing uh, when it comes to competition. And that MMA fight scared me so much that when I had the time to really, when I was recovering and I just really thought about it, it was like, I need to do that again. I want to, I want to conquer that fear. Um, and so I said, yeah, I got to do another one. And then uh, I did my second fight. At the end of 2015, a little over a year later, um, my shoulder recovered. And then they, the event that I was fighting for, Legacy, they started talking about a title fight, stuff like that. And then uh, I didn't really like MMA too much as far as like being violent. And obviously, like I said, it was a very scary, scariest thing I've ever done is getting locked in the cage, you know. Um, but what I noticed was the time in the camp i i was putting together all the greatest relationships of my martial arts journey so i had my muay thai mma coach who is one of my jiu jitsu black belts today and someone that i've been training with for 15 years um you know that's a brother um i have Salo and Shanji, of course, especially Shanji. He was in all my training camps. He was in my corner for all my fights. I have my strength and conditioning coach. I have my wrestling coach, another person I've trained with for many years. My father, all these people are in my corner and closest, you know, the, literally the closest relationships I have are coming together to be there for me. And they were doing that in the camp. And these are people that all have crazy schedules. Literally, the only way we're going to get these group of people together in one place is a wedding, a funeral, or a fight. Yeah. Right? And, and then I started to see that, and I started to really enjoy the training camps and the time that we would spend together. And I also found a really special zen um, on fight night for MMA backstage before walking out. Jiu-Jitsu, I would be really nervous. You know, you kind of run through all the different what-ifs and scenarios and this game, that game, multiple matches. I got to fight this guy. Then I'm going to have to deal with that guy. Then that guy, da-da-da-da. This is one guy, one fight. We go in there. We give everything we got. It's complete chaos. It's so chaotic that you can't overthink anything. You can't. I mean, obviously, you have your strategy, but... I, I found this Zen where it's like, 
I'm just going to trust. I'm going to trust that I have these people in my corner. I'm going to trust the lifetime of training and work that I put in. And we're going to go in there and, you know, we're going to do what we got to do to get this victory. It's do or die, you know. Um, and uh, and I, 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 I fell in love with MMA. And um, I, I actually deeply believe that that's competitively, that's what I'm best at. Mm. Um, it just put together all my trainings, all my lessons, all the people, everything of my whole life into one moment, one expression of who I am. And, um, and that's why I kept going. And then I was like, well, I got to, I got to try to go to the top. Let's, let's try to become an MMA world champion. And we did it together. So then, um, you had a bit of a setback, I guess you could call it minor. I mean, anything, but, but, uh, you were on this ascending deal. And then all of a sudden before world champion title fight, you go in for your physical and yes, every fight I had done, I had, I had nine fights prior to the Bellator world championship fight. Um, every single fight, obviously there's the state, um, their set of requirements, the boxing commission. Yeah. The commission, their set of requirements to get approved to fight. Uh, you know, it was always like some sort of blood work, physical drug tests, things like that. And, um, and that was that the world title fight, the only States in the U S I believe, uh, Las Vegas may be a third, but the two that I know for sure is California and New York. Yeah. They're the only two that require a brain scan, uh, an actual brain scan done pre-fight to get approved to fight. The world title fight was going to be in London. And they also require uh, a brain scan. But uh, I never fought in a state that required it before. So this is the first time for me to get a brain scan done. I had never been knocked out, no concussions, no issues. I don't even get headaches. I don't I don't suffer from anything that would make me think, oh, you know, I, maybe I should get my, my head checked out. And um, uh, I'm like six weeks away from the fight. I'm right in my camp, literally moving to like phase two, the hardest phase of the camp. And I go to get my brain scan done. And long story short, come to find out that I have a brain condition um, that is actually due to a genetic disorder. Um, The condition is called cavernoma. Um, It's actually kind of nowadays, it's like a um, people refer to it as a cavernous malformations um, of the brain. Right. Um, or just cavernoma. And um, I had no idea what it was, what it meant, nothing. And um, I'm navigating through understanding this condition and my health while I'm preparing for a world title fight, getting hit in the head every single day, and also wondering if the fight's even going to happen. Because no one is approving me. No doctor is saying. So when the scan came in, I mean, this is one of those conditions that they were, they will not approve you for? No. A hundred percent. No. Is it why? Because, I mean, I guess um, because it's a condition you're more prone to. So the, the nature of the condition is my brain has these extra blood vessels that grow and they kind of vine up together. Like they wrap together. And so then they look like this little cluster. Mm. And in that vine is the, 
potential for these vessels to bleed. And then you're, you're bleeding in your brain, sure. which of course is never it's, good. Yeah, not a good thing. Right. And due to that being the nature of the condition and the fact that we're talking about head trauma, me getting hit in the head, um, every doctor that I was talking to leading up to that fight was just a flat no. Right uh, As soon as you mentioned what I had, they saw my, mo well, I say see my, my scans. Most of them did not even look at my scans. Um, they just heard the condition it, and that was it? Yeah. And it got to the point where I didn't even go see them. I was just calling and it was flat no off the bat. Um, and so it wasn't until two weeks before the fight that I actually finally got approved to fight. It took me two and a half weeks. I was in Brazil at the time because I was doing the, that f like phase of my fight camp where I'm in Brazil. Sparring. Oh, so did you do, uh, so you did your training camp in Brazil? I always did a portion uh. of my training camps for my fights in Brazil, in the South of Brazil, a place called Curitiba. Um, that is where my Muay Thai coach, MMA coach, is from. Oh. Um, and oddly enough, it's a set of brothers, too. And they very much resemble Solo and Shanji in the sense that there's a very scary brother and then a very nice, friendly brother. Which one is which in Shalo and Shanji? <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Yeah. Um, and um, is, and is the, scary brother, is, the scary is brother was- Florinopolis? Yes. Yeah. Okay. A few hour drive away in okay. the south. Okay. Yes. Um, the scary brother was in Curitiba, and he had a he has a really amazing fight team there, mm -hmm. and I would go there to get the the sparring, the bodies, and really just kind of Rocky style, right? Mm -hmm. You got to escape, forget about business, forget about everything else, and just remind myself, hey, you are about to fight, and so we must be ready to fight. Mm -hmm. And down there, you're literally fighting every day, so you can't not think about fighting. Um, but, uh, that's where I was. And then we see all these doctors, da, 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 da. And then finally we end up seeing the most experienced doctor, the actual specialist, the one who's a neurosurgeon. Um, you know, we would try to talk to other neurologists. Um, and it was just always no right off the bat. Yeah. It's because they, um, they want to cover their ass. Yeah. You yeah. know, if, if, if they say yes and something happens and they're liable, right. so it's easier to just say no. Right. Exactly. What's, this what, guy, what's interesting when, when you're talking about it, um, you know, I played football. They never gave us brain scans. So I'm crazy. Well, I mean, way more hits yeah. in, in a single day than what you guys saw in MMA. Uh, and, and harder hits. <laughs> well, yeah, you got big dudes. With, Everyone's can getting concussed. Yeah, yeah with like an eight-pound helmet that you use a weapon to fucking ram your head into it. And nobody ever scanned our brains when we were 14. Uh, never when I went to college. You know, I think the first time I had somebody do some brain scan was when we went to the NFL. Uh -huh. uh, so it's pretty amazing that. Yeah. I mean, well, same I, thing for MMA too. Like, yeah. I mean, not the same, different concussion level happening, but you would kind of think that probably every state should adopt some sort of brain yeah. exam for their commission, you know, yeah, requirements. You yeah. But um, long story short, this guy, he's like the professor for some of the other doctors we had already seen. Super well-respected. That's why it took so long for us to get to him. His schedule is all booked out, blah, 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 blah. He was the first one to just have a conversation with me and say, hey, how do you feel? I said, man, I had no idea. Like, I feel fine. I'm good. And, uh, and he was just like, look, there's no evidence. There's no studies or data to support 
that getting in the head, getting hit in the head is going to make this worse. I hadn't had the genetic test done, but he was one of the first ones to say, look, I bet you were born with this. You've probably had it your whole life. It's never been a problem. It may never be a problem. If it does happen to become a problem, you'll probably already be very old when that happens. And now that we know that you have it, we can stay on top of it and just keep getting regular scans done. And if we see any change, then we'll, 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 we'll pull you back. Yeah. But until we see change, um, and until you experience a symptom, I'm going to say that it's okay for you to fight. Nice. And he wrote the letter. Yeah. And uh, and I hadn't submitted my brain scan yet. I didn't tell Bellator what was going on. And then until I got that letter, and then I and then I sent everything to them. It's like here's the issue. Here's what I got. Here's this letter. Let me know what the commission says. And. Um, Literally, it was two weeks before the fight, and I'm supposed to leave in a week because I'm going to London a week early to adjust. Two weeks before the fight, finally they said, okay, we're going to let you fight. And then uh, I won the fight, um, and it was a very hard fight that I was a big underdog for. I was not supposed to win on paper. Who'd you fight? I fought Gegard Masasi, who was considered, especially at that time, he was um, still in his prime. Um, He's taken a couple other losses since then in the recent years but uh he was on a big win streak he hadn't lost in like seven years something like that um he was in the top five in the ufc about to get a title shot and then moved to the bellator Mm -hmm. and then just had been killing everybody in bellator and was their champion obviously and uh, i'm a huge underdog he has 50 fights i had nine he had only lost like four fights it was like 46 and four and uh, he's an incredible kickboxer that has shown to have good a good ground game. So on paper, he was supposed to be able to nullify any threat of my takedown and ground game and then knock me out. Um, and I had this terrible camp. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. I would hope so. Not. Yeah. Stressful not even, to say the yeah, least. Yeah. I'm crying every day. Yeah. I don't know if it's even going to happen. You know, you work so hard to get here. This is literally my life mission, a new life mission to become an MMA world champion. All these things. I'd also felt an extreme responsibility to like want that team, those people that are in my corner. I wanted them to be world champions too, you know, and I like my dad and and my, my coach who invested so much in me, my MMA Muay Thai coach. I wanted to take them to that top and now I'm like, fuck, we're here and it may not even happen. You know, I might, I might not get to fight ever again. And, um, you know, it worked out to where I could, but, um, it was not a good camp as far as all that stress and emotion. And in the back of my mind, I'm worried if I'm like really damaging my health, uh, seriously. But I just knew, I told myself, Hey, whatever's going to happen, I have to do this fight. I have to know that I went for that world champ, that that world title, and uh, and whatever whatever happens happens. And uh, so I really went into that fight like it was, it could be the last fight of my life. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and anyways, it came down to the fifth round, and um, and I won the fifth round in dominant fashion. Um, I didn't even get touched in the fifth round, and that's what won me the fight. And um, we had already signed to do a rematch um, in California in January of the following year. I start camp and 
Um, I'm actually down here in Austin doing part of my camp. I would always come down here, train at the Ana gym, and they have everything, recovery, strength and conditioning mm-hmm. coaches. I had good Muay Thai training here and all this stuff, jiu-jitsu. And, um, and a doctor that's, that's on the, the European Athletic Commission ends up getting in touch with me and calling me. And he says, we created a panel and we've been discussing your condition and the fact that you fought and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, this was such a unique situation that they created a panel to keep talking about it, to understand how, you know, their response was and what they should do going forward or whatever. And, um, and he says, look, you, we should not have let you fight and we will never approve you to fight here again. And I strongly recommend you never fight again. And I get super emotional. And uh, and once again, I'm like in a training camp. And I'm, I, so I start telling Bellator, look, I'm not going through another fight camp wondering if I'm going to get to even fight or not. Yeah. California, I have a feeling, you know, they're like, we need to talk to them now. We need to let them know what's going on. Get, give them my scans and all this. So they, Bellator ends up flying me out to UCLA. I end up seeing some really specialized neurosurgeons, neurologists. I get a great feedback from them. Literally the same thing that the doctor in Brazil says. Turn everything in to the California Athletic Commission so I can get approved now for the fight. And they say no. Mm-hmm. The Athletic Commission says no. And now I'm at this point where uh, fighting in the U.S. isn't going to happen. Fighting in, the, in Europe isn't going to happen. And I'm the Bellator champion. And I'm just sitting there like, okay, what are we going to do? And um, and I had a, a mutual friend. I had been, I had been on the Joe Rogan show um, a couple years prior when I had just won the number one contender fight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Joe just fortunately gave me the opportunity. He's like, hey, I know you're going through some crazy stuff. Why don't you just come in here and let it all out and uh, get it off your chest, you know? Because I was, I'd already had people messaging me, asking, when are you going to defend the belt? When are you going to defend the belt? What's going on? Da, da, yeah. da. Oh, he's scared. He's scared to fight. And I'd already signed. Fans are the worst. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not even, and the maybe. best. Not even. Well, it's uh, not fans. No, they're, they're not fans. They're just fucking haters. Yeah. Haters. They're, they're uh, uh, people that um, have never accomplished shit in their life. And they somehow warriors. Uh, make themselves feel better by taking pot shots on people. I mean, dude, we saw it every Sunday. Yeah. You know, all these people that have never played a single down, never strapped it up, right. that are these experts that all want to fucking shit on everything. And I'm yeah. like, I've always, and uh, the fight game even bothers me even more because I respect anybody that has the stones to walk in there. Oh and my like, gosh. I mean, just the of fact. Course. And you see guys like. If you um, haven't done it. Yeah. Well, they you were. have no idea the level of oh. chaos and fear and just what you're doing to your body and oh my god the stress well it was like uh masvidal where he did that knee uh jumping knee and he got bad asterisk yeah and like i mean they were absolutely decimating him and i'm like dude the guy went in there he trained he had a camp yeah the guy uh you know uh you know What's how many name? fights Game did breed. he win? It's like you can yeah. win a million fights, you lose one. Oh, oh he's and, done. And and he, <laughs> then he's to highlight that dude does that flying knee, knowing he's a wrestler. Probably had that whole thing in. Yeah. And like they shit on that dude, and I'm like, man, like it's a whole bunch of people that have never strapped it up a single day, that have never been choked out, that right. never taken these hits. Right. And right. Uh, you know that's why I'm always like, man, like that guy might have done well, but anybody that goes into that cage or goes into those situations or goes into a fight, 
uh, you know, like I love watching all the old Mike Tyson stuff because uh, you can see his opponents, like their eyes are real big and they're still in there mm-hmm. and they know they're about to get decimated and they still made the walk. I mm-hmm. think those people get respect. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel the same way, especially after experiencing MMA firsthand. Man, if you're in there, you deserve respect. Yeah. 100%. Um, so you go on Joe Rogan, you dump it all out. Yeah. Because nothing- I had been lying to everybody. Oh, I mean, I, I, I didn't even tell my family. You know, I was holding on to this. The only people that knew were a couple of my coaches and my my wife, who was my girlfriend or fiance at the time. I don't know. Like, um, oh, I hadn't proposed to her yet. I was just about to propose to her. Um, you know, I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want to freak everybody out if I if I was able to keep fighting. Sure. So my idea was, oh, I'll tell my parents later whenever I retire. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was just going to keep it a secret. And, and literally everyone around me, hey, what's going on? Uh, you know, and I, I told them, oh, yeah, I'm getting ready. They see me training for a new fight that's yeah. supposed to happen in January. And then they see me not training. And they're like, what's up? You know, and I'm like, uh, uh I think they want to move it to another place. Da, da, da. I'm just making up stories every single day. I'm lying to people all around me. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, online, everyone's like, oh, when's Lovato defending the belt? He doesn't want to do the rematch. Uh, he's scared of Musasi, whatever. Da, 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 da. And, uh, and then finally, you know, after talking with Bellator over and over, like I go there to watch the event that I'm supposed to fight on, mm. um, at the forum in LA. And, uh, we have one more conversation the next day. I have a meeting with Scott, Rich and everybody. Um, and I'm just like, guys, look, I'm in this bind. We don't have an answer. Like, how, what am I going to do? You know, um, I want to control the narrative here. I got this opportunity on Joe. Let me just get it all out, you know, and uh, and they supported me. And so I put it all out there um, on Joe's show. And it was a little hard because then like the next day, Bellator is like, yeah, he relinquished the belt. And I was like, yeah, well, that wasn't really what I was trying to do. <laughs> um, I, I even told Joe, he's like, so you're retiring? And I'm like, no, I'm inevitably sidelined. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen i'm going to see more doctors and hopefully something can work out but um it is what it is it didn't i tried for a year and a half seeing more doctors i went to the cleveland clinic in las vegas i compiled all these letters i i got now over a year's worth of scans i put it all into the california athletic commission COVID hit course so i'm doing zooms with them i'm getting all these tests done then they asked me to get more tests done i do the genetic tests i do all this these other tests that they asked for i literally spend thousands and thousands of of my own dollars bellator isn't supporting this anymore now it's me out there seeing all these doctors doing all this stuff i get it all in the commission and literally a year and a half later now uh two years since i fought it's may of 21 I'm about to get married. May of 2021, we do our final thing where they're going to do their final yay or nay. And still a no. And man, the the meeting we did right before that, everyone was ready to say yes, except for one guy. And he asked for more stuff, da-da-da-da. And then the next hearing that we did, I don't know if he persuaded them or what, but it was just like straight up no's. And, uh, and man, I just, I burst into tears again. I was like, all I wanted was a chance to go get my belt back. Yeah. And, um, and it just wasn't going to happen. And then, um, you know, 
it was it was a tough time. I'm coming back to jujitsu and after years away, focus on MMA and all this stuff, and I'm trying to refine myself. And I had some tough losses, some big wins too, but some tough losses. You could see that I lost a step a little bit. I hadn't been focused on jujitsu. Um, and I'm kind of figuring things out, the pandemic, life, everything was hitting all at once. But I, I got back to a good place uh, mentally. And uh, 2022, I, I put together some good some good wins. Um, at the end of 21 into 22, I won the Europeans again, which is a major, major jiu-jitsu title. And I did that. I was one of the oldest guys to ever win a major uh, jiu-jitsu title. Um, at the, so, in the so adult you, division. Uh, yeah, you did the adult. Right, yeah. right. Nice. Um, and I had a really great performance and I had a good showing at the Worlds, a good showing at ADCC, everything. I got married, I had babies. Life was going well. Um, and then uh, I, it's funny because I told my wife during 2022, uh, you know, she's pregnant. All these great things are happening. I'm getting some good, a string of good wins together. Um, I'm doing my last worlds, me and Shanji together. We, we leave our belts on the mat. We have this beautiful, beautiful moment there. Um, you know, and I retire, <laughs> um, basically I did my last worlds and then, um, ADCC is coming up literally the biggest grappling event ever. It's ginormous last year, just blew away any other ADCCs in the past. This is my seventh ADCC. Um, you know, once again, one of the the oldest guys out there. I reached the final four. I have a good showing. Um, you know, so I'm top four in the world at 39. And during these camps, I'm telling my wife, look, I'm doing the biggest gi tournament ever. One more time. It's amazing. I'm so grateful. I'm so inspired. I'm doing ADCC and I got this big, huge standing ovation. It's just amazing. The energy I never imagined a grappling event or a jiu-jitsu event that big ever. I could never, going back to being well, the kid. look at 2024. I mean, they uh, rented out that oh, yeah. place. It's, it's like 18,000 seats. I mean, it's going to be incredible. Even bigger, right. But at that time, I mean, I couldn't, it was just unbelievable. So I have all these special emotions and feelings. And I tell my wife, hey, how crazy would it be if I get to do an MMA fight this year and I'm able to come back? And I did the highest level of gi, the highest level of no gi, and then get to do an MMA fight all in the same year at 39 going on 40. How crazy would that be? And um, and I had always dreamed of fighting in Japan. That's every martial artist's dream. Um, Japan was my last hope because Japan, there's no commission. Yeah. They do whatever they want. They don't, whatever. We figure it out, right? But the pandemic hit really hard over there. Sure. And so the borders didn't even open until October 2022. And I kept telling her, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I got my eyes out. I'm like looking and uh, and I'm like, man, what if it happens? What if it happens? What if something happens? And sure enough, in November, I get an opportunity um, and it happens. And I basically only have six weeks to get ready, which is sh kind of short sure. for an MMA fight but because i kept competing at the highest level i just did adcc i'm in great shape my wrestling's good and i'd still been training muay thai and mma too because i have fighters mm -hmm. and i've been helping them i never got too far away from competition and mma training um 
because of that, because I didn't just stop. You know, when everything went down with Bellator, I could have easily just retired completely. Mm-hmm. I had the perfect story right there. You know, like I became world champion, triple combat world champion, you know, gi, no gi, MMA. It would have been it would have been a great story to just stop, but I couldn't stop because they told me to stop. It wasn't me stopping. And I, so I kept going. And then what did I do? I said, oh, let's go back to the gi. Literally the hardest thing I could do, yeah. you know? And I went back, just took some L's, but kept pushing. And I went out on my shield in a good way. And, uh, and because I didn't fully retire, you know, if, if I hadn't done anything for three years and Japan calls, pff, I wouldn't be ready for six weeks. Are you kidding sure. me? I wouldn't be ready. But because I kept going, um, when I when that opportunity came, I got to scratch off that life dream, go to Japan, fight in Tokyo on New Year's Eve, and I got to do it with my babies with me. Nice. We took the babies to Japan. Uh, I have twin babies. Um, they were born in July. This was New Year's Eve, and after I won the fight, I fought a 25 year old, eight no undefeated fighter, and I kimura to him in two minutes. It was perfect. I didn't even get touched, and I did a kimura. And that's one of my moves. And the Kimura, for whatever reason, was eluding me in MMA. I never hit a Kimura in MMA, but I had hundreds and hundreds of jujitsu Kimuras in competition. And then there I am in Japan, the home of the Kimura. <laughs> yeah. And I hit my first Kimura, and it was just beautiful. And then I brought my babies into the ring with me. And um, I could see that that's, that's why. That's yeah. why everything happened. It was so that moment could could manifest itself. That's amazing. It's incredible that you got the cap. A lot of people don't get the opportunity to, and not to say you've gone out. I uh, I was laughing when we were at Worlds. You were like, uh, I think you even said to me, I'm sad I left my belt out there. I kind of <laughs> wanted to get back in there. And like, uh, you see those guys and I, you know, if you can yeah. go out there and be competitive, why wouldn't you be competitive? Well, that's the thing people don't understand. You know, a lot of, you hear a lot of people talk, oh, why doesn't he hang it up? He's got to know when to hang it up. The thing is, in order to become great, you have this resilient belief in yourself that you can do it, you know, that that you're capable. I, I can, you know, I I know I can win. I know I can win. And it's hard to accept or come to terms with I can't anymore, you know? Um, and so if physically you're still feel good and you're able to train and you're, you know, you're still motivated. Um, I, I can see why a lot of people could, could not just start saying, Oh yeah, no, I, I can't. And I won't or whatever. Um, I'm definitely the type that's like that. And I love competition and I keep myself in shape. And, um, uh, that's, well, I, that's why I, I still, I'm still going a little bit, you yeah. know, and, um, well, if you got these young fighters and you have a competition and you're competitive with the best in the world, makes total sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens at ADCC next year. I might, I might just have to tell everyone, Hey guys, I was just kidding last time. <laughs> I'm back. One more. <laughs> One more. I like it. I'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll be stoked to see. I'm, I'm definitely going to yeah. be there. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see these guys go out and do it. And uh, it, it's amazing to see what's happened. Um, you know, I, I remember watching the very first uh, UFC fight 
and I remember like, you know, it was, you know, no weight classes, you know, uh, Horace Gracie's out there in his gi, you know, the dude's out there and that guy gets kicked in the face, you know, Ken yeah. or uh, no, who was the guy that got kicked in the face? The uh, sumo guy. Yeah. And his teeth got like yeah, knocked yeah. out. And I remember being like, oh my God. So the, yeah. to see the evolution of it, um, you know, and then to see like the wrestling and all this, it's been incredible. And then to see the jujitsu stuff. So it's, uh, it's neat for me because uh, I'm kind of a snob in a lot of ways by playing in the NFL, which I consider to be, you know, the top of the sports, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, millions of people around the world, hundreds of thousands of people and a hundred thousand athletes. Yeah. And yeah. You, you get to go and you pretty much tee it up against the toughest guys in the world every Sunday in front of mm-hmm. millions of people in fancy uniforms. And I got to do that for a decade. So in a way, like that's my perception of what it looks like. And it's so neat to see young athletes in a sport that's ascending because I think jujitsu is exciting. And what I'm excited about is how often they get to compete. We only got to do it 17, 18 times, whatever it is, playoffs, however it looked. And I got to do it once a week in front of people. But the fact that these guys have all these tournaments, I wish there was um, a little bit better organization to treat the athletes better. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I went to the Worlds, I was fucking like, like my head almost exploded to see that these kids are laying on the back on jujitsu mats underneath mm-hmm. the stands. Mm-hmm. They didn't have water or lunches or any of that other stuff. I was like, man, like we're, we're not doing it like this ever again. Yeah. Like if I had known, I, you know, we would have prepped different. Well, but, you'll see that at ADCC next year. ADCC is, is the, yeah. the elite professional the, event. I mean, they are paying at the world's now. Uh, actually, it's funny. Shanji just reminded me that he's like, "Oh yeah, Victor won this much money." I was like, "Oh what?" Oh, and he I, got a cool I, I, ring. Yeah, yeah, and, and he got like he got a diamond ring, yeah. which I was stoked for him. Yeah, and I'm like, "Damn, man!" And I, I made a joke with Shanji. I was like, "Hey, they owe you a lot of money," <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it was funny when I was sitting there with Shanji. He was like, uh, you know, they were showing up on the big uh, uh, Jumbotron marquee deal, like all like the Hall of Famers and like the years and all that. And he's like, "Hey, look, there I am." And then it was like the next year, he's like, hey, look at that one. Uh-huh, and he was uh-huh. just like, kept like, oh, there's my brother. There's this. So yeah, yeah. it was it was neat to see uh, the history. And yeah. uh, what's wild is to see like this whole thing kind of going on. And like, it's like the growth and and just, you know, really watching it. Yeah. It's, it's been uh, it's been an amazing yeah. thing to kind of drop in and see yeah. and uh, to watch the growth. And I, I like for me, I mean, I, I take all my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to have this school or this skill. I want them to be exposed to it. It's the best education. It is the best education. Well, you saw my son yesterday. Yeah. In the weight room, like working out, like he was right there with us right in the middle. Leading by example, you know, you're, you're, you're showing him your work, what you do. He's seen the other athletes. He's going to be inspired. He wants to be strong already. Um, you know, now I'm a, I'm a brand new father. Uh, kids just turned one. Well, I got twin girls too. My little girls are 11. And, I, I didn't. I need to meet them too. Yeah. Oh yeah. They'll. Uh, um, well, we're probably going to miss it right now. But uh, uh, there's a, a teenage class that I take Jamie, my daughter, okay. to at, at Victor's place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, it's yeah, it, it's uh, incredible. It was funny. She came in yesterday and she was trying to be all super cool with everybody, like "What's up, bro?" and this. And a rush totally checked Jamie. <laughs> and then like she came on the mat and was like putting her gi on. And Victor's like, "Step off the mat. Don't come on the mat unless you're dressed." Mm-hmm. I was ecstatic that they. There's yeah. a standard holding it in the car. She's like, why are they acting like that? I'm like, because there's a standard. Like, you can be friendly, but they're not your friends. Those are your instructors. They're your coaches. They're my friends and they're guys I train. They're my athletes. And I tell them this constantly. We can be friendly, but when it's time to work, it's time to work. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to learn that. And when you learn that, then we'll respect yeah. you. Then you can joke around. Yeah. So 100%. it was great that, like. And it's just, great you have other people doing that. Oh, my God. Because if you do it. it, it yeah. they, they only hear so much from right. the father. Right. When all of a sudden they hear this. And uh, and then it was a rush hitter. And then a victory. I was like, 
I told today I was so stoked for them. So what does the uh, future hold for Lovato? Um, man, it's uh, competitively. Um, I'm I'm kind of on just a going with the flow, I guess you would say. I'm the, always the type that has a plan. Da 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 da. But um, you know, I kind of did my my big goodbyes. I feel very content for the first time in my life. Actually, that as soon as that fight in Japan was over, I just felt like this incredible weight. Like you accomplished <sighs> what you needed to accomplish. Yes. You know, I I didn't give up. I made my comeback. I didn't have someone else ending my career for me. And, uh, you know, I did my big goodbye at the Worlds and ADCC and everything else. And I kind of just had this super content feeling. And I, and I did take a, a good break earlier this year and just soaked up family time and um, of course, I have a lot of of um, business aspirations, um, you know, with my my school, my affiliate network, my association. We're over 30 schools now. Across What's the North America. Uh, is it Lovato Jiu Jitsu? Lovato Jiu Jitsu Association. Yes. Um, which is, you know, brother or, or sister franchise to Six Blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all. There's some it. weird inse- uh, ancestral, <laughs> you know, incest. Yeah, uh, sorry, ancestral, not ancestral. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. a weird. We all fly the flame. Yeah. It's the same flag, more yeah. or less. But yeah. uh, it's nice because then we reach more. You know, I have uh, a team that I've been building worldwide for a long time, and he has his team, and then we all come together and fight, fight as one. Yeah. Um, but um, like the Jedi Knights. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, yeah, so I'm going to keep building that, keep doing what I do, show up, train and teach every day, um, you know, trying to promote the timeless and, and build that out and um, and motivate, inspire people with that inside of jiu-jitsu. Um, I have a book that uh, is nearly, nearly complete um, that will be coming out early next year and um, I have a, a actually for that Japan fight, um, the comeback fight. Will Harris, who is a, a very well-known documentarian, he did the Anatomy of a Fighter series uh, following several UFC fighters. And he has many videos on YouTube that have millions and millions of views. He actually documented this Japan comeback fight that I did. He went to Japan with us and everything. And um, uh, that is nearly complete. And I mean, it's it's basically complete, but... Uh, we've got a few finishing touches on that, and that's going to have the same title as my book. Nice. Um, so I have these two things, and and maybe down the line that leads to some podcasting and, and stuff. But, uh, you know, a lot of things to keep me busy. Um, but then, number one, I'm just really enjoying being a father, family life, um, learning and thinking about the future in that and uh, teaching and helping my kids to grow to to go, you know, be great in whatever they want to do. Um, you know, we'll have to have another podcast or conversation about about some Parenting? of those thoughts. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, there's love, a lot of them. I would love to discuss and get your your knowledge and and, and ideas there. Um, I'm sure it's it's impossible to really uh, have yeah. any expectations. No, right? the but, the um um. I think raising sons is different than daughters. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you'll see, I mean, you got one of each. I already is, feel a difference. Yeah. In, I Even I, though they're one, yeah. the way I feel my boy, I just like, I just want to grab him and throw him around yeah. and just like, hey, let's go. Come on. Da, da, da. And I, then her, I'm just like. Oh. I think you have yeah. to treat your daughter or like your son. 
Uh, I, I like had a dad uh, tell me once, he's like, you know, this whole deal about your little girl's got him wrapped around the finger. He's like, if you can get away from that and just treat her like, like, like the boys, you'll do them a greater disservice. If you put her up on a pedestal, he's like, I don't think that does your daughter a service. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I've always okay. been, um, cause it, it's really easy to do, Yeah, you know? Um, but yeah, she I, could do it to me already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so then, you know, and she's it, just a little baby and I'm and, like, Oh yeah. And they're, they're super cute, but I've tried to make like a conscious effort to like, okay. Treat them very equal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, cause like the, you know, the age old of like, Oh, you know, I'm going to raise my son to be a man, but I'm going to raise my daughter to be a princess. And I'm like, I don't know what that expectation is. And yeah. that's what the guy said. He's like, you know, you raise your daughter to be a princess. Like you want her to have a very positive uh, perception of what a man is and the mm-hmm. way that she, that women learn that is how you treat their mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have a good relationship with the mom and you treat their mother well, mm-hmm. and especially with respect. Yeah. I remember um, my dad was a criminal defense attorney for like 55 years. Um, and I asked him, I was like, Hey, did you ever do any family law? He's like, yeah, a few times. He's like, I couldn't do it. It was too ugly doing divorces. I was like, dad, you've like, you've, res- you know, you've represented uh, gangbangers and killers and murderers and this. And he's like, <laughs> it's a lot cleaner and easier than doing family law and, uh-huh. and divorces. And I was like, why is that? And I, we, we got into a conversation about it and I asked him, was there like one common thread that you saw with a divorce? What would happen? And he goes, yeah. When people lose respect for each other mm-hmm. and he goes, I got to see it at the worst where mm-hmm. all of a sudden they didn't right. respect each other and the ugly things they say, he's like, as long as you have respect for your partner, the marriage can continue. The minute you lose respect, it's, it's over. Yeah. And so I think for that, as long as you respect the other individual and you treat their mother well, I think daughters learn how a man should treat them yeah. based on how you treat their mother. Right. But a son is a little bit different. Yeah. He's going to learn how to be a man based on like who you are as a father the example. and especially the people that you bring into your life. Uh-huh. That's why I'm very like conscious of like who the other men are in his life. Right. And you know what, like, you know, the standard and this and like, you know, especially, and that's what I really enjoyed about taking um, the kids to jujitsu and training with, mm-hmm. you know, Victor and Shanji is like, there's a, uh, expectation. Um, they're extremely they demand a lot for mm-hmm. those kids, but they're also really good with them. I mean, the fact that Victor teaches little kid classes, mm-hmm. I mean, he's gotta be the only world champion in the, in out, out there that actually still trains kids. Yeah. And you should see how excited those kids are that Victor's there. Like yesterday he showed up a little late and they was like, Mr. Victor's here. My fault. Oh yeah. But it was, it was hilarious. They like cheered. Uh, uh-huh. And they, you know, and they know he's a world champion. And like I, when, uh, um, you know, I came home after we were at Worlds and like showing like the girls and um, and and Cashy like all of like the videos and mm-hmm. what he's doing and how well he done and the medals, like they were, you know, felt yeah. like they had a part of it. Yeah. And I think oh, I, I know that that's important to them, and they'll mm-hmm. remember kind of like mm-hmm. you're sitting here talking about. You know, my dad trained with this guy and this. I mean, these are the stories that build us. Right. And that's why I'm always so fascinated by the origin story. You know, I mean, uh, everybody always wants to know, like, oh, what have you accomplished? And they want to know what you've done. I'm always fascinated on the origin because nobody ever accomplished something great where the origin story isn't interesting to me. Right, right. And so um, many things. Oh, well, in line. Yeah. And, and it's it, it's so neat to hear. I mean, you like you grow up in this place and you're exposed to this. You know, the fact that your dad jumped in the car and drove three hours like that tells volumes yeah. about your dad. 20 I, plus hours he would drive I, from Oklahoma to California. Yeah, it's crazy. But like it was it was wild. Like the first day when I met Shanji, uh, I took Jamie up. Um, you know, we met through Scotty Oats and I wanted to uh, my daughter, Jamie, didn't want to swim anymore. So I took her up to do jits. And as I brought her up and she was going through, you know, sh- with uh, with Shanji, he's like, oh, it's kind of a far drive. And I was like, yeah, it's like, I mean, it could be an hour, it could be 30 minutes, but if the best dude in the world 
is lives up the street from you and I got to drive an extra 20 minutes and it doesn't make a big a difference. Yeah. And he was like, kind of looked at me. I guess a lot of people have been like, oh, the drive's too far. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this dude's like won like uh, a ton of world championships. And it's like, you know, one of the, you know, I, I looked it up and it was like, you know, the best ever do it for 15 years on yeah. some website deal. Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, dude, we're good. Yeah. I don't mind doing the drive. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, and then we obviously met Victor and his school's a little closer. So I take uh, my son over there just because mm-hmm. Arash is so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. But um, it's really neat to see the community. But um, no, man, I'm, I'm stoked that yeah. you got to share this well, my, uh, this origin story with me. I'm, I, I'm fascinated by these stories. My wife, uh, it's a good time to just give her some love and, and shout out. She is incredible. And um, watching her become a mom and... She really is super mom. You know, we have twins and it's not like my life is normal. (laughs) You know, I'm all over the place doing all these. I mean, I did worlds, ADCC, fought MMA in Japan. You know, who got the babies to Japan? I was already in Japan. She got there with her mom. I almost had like a a panic attack thinking about taking (laughs) six months old babies because we did that. We took her. uh, My son was nine months old and we took him to a wedding in the UK. He probably has never slept well. So the fact that you guys took the kids and had them there, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's that's my wife. And yeah. um, she is just an uh, incredible, amazing woman that gets all my love and respect, 100%. And at the end of the day, um, you know, of course, I will do my best to be, you know, the best dad I can. But knowing that she's going to be the best mom, she can as well. Um, you know, the, the, the babies are, they're, they're going to be, yeah. She's going to, she's going to, they're going to have no choice, <laughs> no choice, but to, to rise to the occasion with, yeah. with her, me and, and all the great people we have around. So, um, but, uh, but you know, the future, um, uh, I'm still, still in the game a little bit. Like, uh, I had this amazing opportunity to compete for who's number one. They came yeah. to Oklahoma city. So yeah, was I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if something else comes up with that. And, and, uh, just as I keep Victor sharp and, you know, train with these kids. We'll see what what happens um, for ADCC next year. But I got to end things with going back to this story that I said I had with Solo. Okay. Because I talked about him so much. It's not long. It's a quick story. I, I went to Brazil to do the Brazilian Nationals this year in the Master Division. I'm, I'm done with adult gi. I'm not going to do any more adult gi. But it had been 10 years since I competed in Brazil. And uh, I really felt like my heart was telling me, you should go. Go do that. Do it as a master and um, and get that little fire, get that little inspiration because I only want to do what inspires me. And anytime I compete in Brazil, I'm extremely inspired. Uh, I think about being the teenager 20 years, 20 plus years ago um, down there and just it does something special to me. So I decide I'm going to go and, and Solo's there. Um, funny, he never told me he was going to be there. I knew he was in Brazil but he's in a different city. And then IBJJF posts a picture of him, Salo Hibeto in the house at the Brazilian nationals. And I messaged Salo. I'm like, Oh yes, you're going to be, you're going to be. And of course he says, what'd you expect? Of course I'm going to be here. You're coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's typical Salo answer. So now I'm even more inspired. I'm going to get to compete in Brazil, which I hadn't done in 10 years. And I hadn't done that with Salo since. Oh, five something like that, almost 20 years that I had Solo with me in Brazil and we're doing a tournament and he's in my corner, right? He's there to coach me and and support me. So he is there for every single one of my matches. 
And I had like a 50 man division. I had five fights to win. So it's an all day thing. And I'm having one of my best performances just as far as like the clean, the precision, the jujitsu that I'm demonstrating. It is so much solo style, so much of his influence. You can see what I'm doing. I'm mounting and choking everybody. And remember, I didn't do that until I learned it from him. Mm-hmm. I am doing to these guys what he did to me for many years, right? And so I'm showing his jiu-jitsu and, it's, and we're just, the, the energy is going, it's amazing. I'm in the final. The guy ends up taking me down. So he's up two points. So it's a little scrappy and everyone go, goes crazy when he takes me down, you know, uh, obviously he's Brazilian and um, I come back, I sweep him back and I land right in the half guard. Boom. I land in a beautiful, beautiful spot. It's two to two. And now it's time for me to win. I get to a position where basically if it was chess, I know it's over. It's over. And, uh, and it is a spot that is so solo style, his influence on me, what he taught me and how I made it my own. Da, 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 da. It is solo style. And he is there and we're in Brazil and just this whole energy, 20 years we've been training together now. It's our 20 year anniversaries this year from our fight it was 20 years ago. It was 2003, 2023. I get to the spot. I know it's over. But it's not, I haven't scored any more points. It's still 2 2. I just, I know it's the beginning of the end for this guy. And I look up at Salo and I just give him like this little, you know, this little nod. And I see him give me this proud, and Salo's not the type to smile, not, not a proud smile. If, if we're joking, we, you know, whatever, I mean, he'll laugh, he'll smile. But that, that endearing, lovely, like proud, my son. You know, smile. He gives me this beautiful little, you know, just this little nod, smile, look. And I got a picture of it. Uh, a photographer sent me a picture in that spot. You can see, he takes a picture of me, and then you can zoom in and see Salo's face in the back. Like you just, you know, use your finger, zoom in. And uh, as far as things that have happened to me, like that just, um, you know, like I told you how much love I have for Saul and all that, just that moment right there, man, that was, that was special. That was really special. And, um, and then I, I sure enough, a few steps later, I end up choking, finishing the guy. Um, and, uh, and it was like his move. I haven't told that story, um, like this. So, uh, I thought it'd be a good way for us to end, but that was that that mentor, that guy that saw that kid who fought him, and da da da. da. Twenty years later, you know, I think I finally made him proud uh, in that moment. I mean, of course, he's been proud of me, but that was just that was something really, really beautiful. And then two weeks later, I won that who's number one um, in my town, and uh, now I'm just like I said, just riding the wave. Um, and we'll see what happens next competitively. But but uh, I thought I just I had to share that with you. It's amazing. And and I'm looking forward to when you get to spend a little time with him. Sounds great. Well, uh, I'm going to end it there because yes. anything else I say is disingenuous. So <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Power Athlete Radio.